<laughs> I'm glad you are. You 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 put together innovation, and it's fun. And I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. And shut up, shut up, shut up. End of day. The freedom of speech is being taken away. And welcome to a brand new life, to a brand new day, all the way from the wastelands of California. My name is Michael, and I am a mere figment of your imagination. I look forward to once again serve you those conscious coma-inducing vibrations. First-time listeners, turn on, tune in, and drop out. This is a different kind of show, a place where we don't feel so alone. Let us chase away the light no matter what you at home choose to believe. I do admire you for your curiosity greatly. Live and direct right now on the TuneIn Radio app. Search End of Days and, of course, you'll find the 24-7 network. Go to michaeldeacon.com for your preferred choice of platform to hear the podcast rendition of this program. Do keep in mind, there is a live chat room where listeners just like yourself all come together. I'm there. Why aren't you? Go in there right now. It's a good time, I promise. Joining me tonight is Dr. Michael Aquino. Michael is a highly decorated military intelligence officer specializing in psychological warfare. He is the founder of the Temple of Set. It was established in the United States in 1975 by Dr. Aquino. He, uh, of course, is the author of multiple books. His latest book is Mind War. Once again, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for allowing me into your hearts and into your minds. Here we are again on a night like this. My soul wants to say hello to all of you great people out there. Thank you for being here. I appreciate all the efforts, especially on a Saturday, as I like to say. Of course, hello to those listening to this on YouTube and, of course, a replay. Thanks for being here. I do look forward to this one. Tonight will be a bit of a rattlesnake. I hope you are ready. Lots of things to cover here. And, of course, my guest is coming up in a moment here. Let me reach out to him now. Michael, are you there? I am here. Ah, Thank you for sharing your time with us this evening. And, of course, it's been a while since we last talked, so I'm truly excited for tonight. Well, it's my pleasure to uh, be here, and thank you for the invitation. I know all about you, but, of course, there are a few souls out there who have no clue who you are. Plenty of first-time listeners. I thought it would be great right now, Doctor, to go over some of some of your background here. Well, that's... Uh, I suppose because I have a, a, a rather complex history and in a number of interlocking fields, and some of those fields are uh, rather unusual. But uh, if you'd like, I can sort of go down the high points uh, of these. Yes, let, let's do that. All right. Let's start with the academic side. Um, I 
I'm a graduate of Santa Barbara High School. I then went uh, and completed a bachelor's in political science at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Later on, I went back to UC Santa Barbara and completed a master's and a PhD there, also in political science uh, in the fields of um, political theory and international relations and American government. I then uh, took a second master's degree in public administration at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. in national resource management, which is uh, essentially a specialty designed to look at the United States' national resources as they are handled in uh, budgetary and policy uh, discussions. So that um, that takes care of the academic credentials right. side of it. Mm-hmm. I uh, I taught to political science at Golden Gate University, upper division, in these same fields for about uh, uh, seven years in uh, the 1980s. And uh, um, that, I suppose, is the, as I said, the pure academic side. Then on my military side, I went through the ROTC program of the U.S. Army at UC Santa Barbara, graduated as a distinguished military graduate, which uh, is a designation that pretty much puts you on the same level as a West Point grad, and uh, was initially commissioned in armor. I spent some time in the armored cavalry of the 82nd Airborne Division at Fort Bragg, and uh, then uh, proceeded to uh, what has been pretty much my primary specialty, special operations since then, I went through the Psychological Operations School at uh, Fort Bragg in 1969, Uh, went over, did a year in Southeast Asia, in Vietnam and other countries there in special operations with uh, psychological operations and special forces and various unnamed civilian functions and uh, have uh, then came back to the United States, went through qualifications in military intelligence, uh, strategic, and space, and also in uh, what would be my primary designation, political military affairs officer, which is sort of a liaison officer for NATO and other political uh, military combination institutions. I became a foreign area officer for Western Europe. Um, This was pretty much during the Reagan era of the, uh, the final parts of the Cold War, and in 1987 um, was the sole uh, officer in the Army Reserve sent to the uh, highest educational institution in the United States for the D- Defense Department, the um, uh, National uh, Defense University uh, at the uh, uh, at the um, um, Industrial College of the Armed Forces, ah, yes. which is sort of the institution of the military-industrial <laughs> complex, you might say, Correct. at Fort McNair, Washington. So that um, that pretty much covers the military side of it. And the third aspect would be my history in personal initiation. Uh, I grew up fairly conventionally. My father was a Catholic, my mother um, a very casual agnostic, and... Uh, I never really paid much attention to uh, religion one way or the other. I didn't have a uh, chip on my shoulder about it, nor was I passionate about it. It just seemed like a somewhat anachronistic um, uh, pastime for 20th century intellectualism. And up through my college years, I suppose you could say that I was an existentialist. Right. And, um, you know, the the sort of person who sits around... uh, 
drinking espresso in coffee houses, listening to offbeat poetry, and wondering about existence and essence and that kind of thing. Understood. And Michael, so, uh, Michael, I'm sorry, to, <laughs> I'm sorry to cut you off there, but I, I, I was hoping you could take us a little bit further back in time. I thought we could take a okay. little trip back into memory lane here. And, oh sure. Yeah, let, let's go back to your earliest roots here. Um, you lived with both of your parents, correct? Yes. And your your childhood was normal as everyone else's, correct? Yes. How did you stumble upon, I guess you could say, a young Michael Aquino? How does he stumble upon the Church of Satan? Okay. Well, I'm I was about to come to that. Oh, okay. I didn't. Go ahead. Uh, I didn't. I didn't bump into it until. I had graduated from the University of California uh, with my bachelor's degree, and I was about to go off as a new second lieutenant to Fort Bragg. And that uh, was the year 1968, and the movie Rosemary's Baby was opening in San Francisco, uh, made from the novel by Ira Levin. And I decided since I was taking a few days leave before going east, I would go down and catch the early show, which I did. And as I was leaving the theater, uh, and it was getting ready for the main show of the evening, a black hearse pulled up in front, and out of the hearse uh, piled a number of uh, formidable-looking ladies and gentlemen, all dressed in black, uh, the central figure of which was a uh, very imposing goateed man who looked sort of like Ming the Merciless from the Flash Gordon serials. And they came uh, through the lobby in, in quite a commotion to go see the movie, and after I watched this uh, procession go by, I went over to the theater manager and said, what in the world was that? And he said, well, that was Anton LaVey and some members from the Church of Satan. And he was involved with making, helping to make the movie. I said, no kidding, a Church of Satan right here in San Francisco. Cool. Nice. <laughs> you have to understand, this was the this was the time of the Haight-Ashbury era, and uh, right. you couldn't find anything in San Francisco that wasn't really pretty weird, you know, at that oh, point. Yes. We'd just been through the summer of love. I'd been hanging out with the Jefferson Airplane, Big Brother and the Holding Company, you know, other uh, um, have-a-good-time acid groups like this and so on. Um, and in any case, I decided I would uh, go check them out. So uh, it, it took me about uh, a half a year or so. I was busy with other things, going through jump school and so on. But next time I came back to San Francisco, um, I saw that uh, the Church of Satan was giving lectures to the members of the public. So I went and listened to a couple of lectures by Anton on sort of conventional occult subjects, but he struck me as a very pleasant, uh, a very un, uh, unegotistical person. Uh, he had a good sense of humor. I sort of liked his uh, personality and his, and his intellect. And in, in a nutshell, I decided that I would try out membership in the Church of Satan, which um, then impressed me enough that I decided to become a member of the priesthood, and then it on, went on from there. So that's how I ran into the Church of Satan to begin with back then. So it was just a random sort of thing. Yes, I'd never been uh, I'd never been obsessed with occultism or oh, anything yes. unusual before then. But I am a naturally curious person. And, of course, I'd reached that point where I had begun to think about metaphysical questions. I mean, you know, the whole concept of, of who we are as, as, as intellects, as people, what humanity is, what it's doing here. Uh, do we have a purpose? Do we have a morality? Do we have a mission? Or are we just sort of random accidents or what? And it seemed to me that Anton LaVey was off on a, a sort of exploration here that um, uh, sounded more impressive 
than many of the alternatives that I'd run into before that, because conventional religion hadn't explained it well to me. Philosophy, uh, abstract philosophy, was sort of vague on a lot of these things. It, it would leave you hanging with with uh, very exotic words that uh, didn't really mean anything. And I thought I would uh, give this uh, avenue a chance. As I said, it uh, turned out to be a very interesting chance and a very fun one. There was also another aspect, which was that this was a time of, of social criticism in the United States where the uh, our younger generation, our, our boomer generation, um, felt that, that uh, ordinary society was rather hypocritical. And the Church of Satan, among other things, took a strong stand against hypocrisy both religious and uh, secular. The idea was that um, if you are going to take a position on something, then you're responsible for it personally, and you should own up to it. And if you're going to advocate or conduct yourself according to a certain way of behavior, then you should have at least the uh, moral courage to uh, face it head on, accept it in yourself, and say, okay, this is what I am, this is what I'm going to do or be, and this is why, and say so instead of trying to behave one way and excuse yourself another or otherwise be phony. So it was an, a religion and a personal conduct standard that advocated uh, a very blunt kind of honesty and a very blunt kind of self-examination. Were your parents open-minded in terms of religion? Yes. As I, as I said uh, before, my mother wasn't really religious uh, at all. Um, she was a very interesting person. She had an IQ of about 187, which uh, put her in Ripley's Believe It or Not. She um, entered Stanford University at, I think, around age 14 and completed it in three years. Um, she could read books just about as fast as she could turn the page and was a phenomenally brilliant uh, individual. Um, my Father was uh, the son of Italian immigrants who came over here, escaped from Italy in the time of the Mussolini regime over there. And my grandfather opened a barber shop on the waterfront up in Portland, Oregon. And my father, um, after graduating from high school here and becoming a U.S. citizen, got a job on a tramp steamer uh, going up and down the, the uh, coast here. And while he had stopped at one point in San Francisco, he met my mother. They fell in love. And the result was me. Uh, nice, so yes. it was sort of a lady in the tramp kind of romance, but, <laughs> right. uh, but, uh, quite a lot of fun. Dad, as I said, grew up a Roman Catholic in Italy. The, the Italians have a very, um, casual attitude about Catholicism, just like they do everything else. And, uh, the priest in our, in their town in Calabria was a very dashing fellow who, had a uh, torrid affair with my grandmother while grandfather was here in Portland, Oregon. But he, in good uh, in good conscience and everything, remained a family friend uh, for the rest of everybody's lives there. And uh, I met him later on in Santa Barbara when he was an old gentleman and visiting my father. Sounds like everything's pretty normal. Yeah, I think so. He had a very happy uh, upbringing, I would have to imagine. And I, I, I think it's fair to say you were also very curious growing up. I've, I've always been driven by curiosity. Uh, that, as I said, is really what got me into all the things that I've gotten into. I don't Correct. have mm -hmm. any, I don't have any, any, what you'd call demons, you know, that, that right. drive me. I don't, right. I don't have any hatreds. I don't have any, um, um, 
I don't know what you'd call agendas that I ha- or things that I have to push or sell on anybody. Understood. Yes. I just like to find things out, and that's, that's always sort of been where where I've been coming from. Definitely, definitely. And of course, as you know, Michael, you are cognitive of any time you insert your name into a, a search engine. You see all the negative publicity you've received over the years, and I'm still curious if you are still being harassed in today's current time. Well, the interesting thing is I never received the, a, a single shred of um, of negative accusation or publicity or anything until the 19 the period of time in 1987 when the country was going through a uh, what I can only call a kind of a hysterical mania about imaginary satanic ritual abuse that was supposedly um, uh, convulsing daycare centers all through the country. And right. by about 1992, uh, the FBI and other law enforcement had pretty much exposed this as all nonsense. But during the earlier part of the 80s, it was causing a huge amount of damage around the country. And uh, at that time... In 1987, one of the places that went through a an SRA scare was the Presidio of San Francisco. Um, at that time, I was actually on the other side of the country, but I I was going through the course at the Industrial College of the Armed Forces that I mentioned to you earlier, which was a right. one-year course over in Washington. So I read only about this in the news media, that there was this ruckus going on in San Francisco. But one of the people in San Francisco who was... Uh, pushing the scam at the time was an army chaplain by the name of Larry Adams Thompson and his wife, and they decided that they would make an accusation against me and my wife and say that we had kidnapped and raped their stepdaughter, uh, who was a, a three-year-old child at the time. And since I was a, a, a Satanist and B, a psychological operations officer, that sounds pretty scary to the American public, Right. So it it made the it made the big time media it made the national media. All of a sudden, I was being invited on Geraldo and uh, uh, over Winfrey yeah. and and having reporters all over the place. Right. And the the chaplain's accusation was bullshit and was very easily exposed as such. I mean, I was they checked into my attendance records in the army and found that I was in. Washington, D.C. on all possible dates of the chaplain's accusation, so it all fizzled out, and he didn't make his get his uh, $3 million that he had hoped to get with a fake claim. But uh, by that by that time, um, my name had been thrown all over the country, and the people who seemed to make a, uh, a passion or have fun with the idea of, of pedophile conspiracies just kept throwing the mud at me after that, despite the fact that there was uh, absolutely nothing to it. And that's just what happens in the age of the internet, you know. So nothing, nothing had happened prior to that, and uh, there was certainly nothing to that event and nothing uh, after that. But uh, that's that's what happens when the lunatic fringe decides they're going to pick on somebody for some reason. Right. So right. all I've been able to do is, since that time, when something has come up and I've been asked a question about it, I just straighten it out with the facts, you know, as I'm doing here again with you right now. And uh, also, I decided to write up a, a very extensive book that described the entire Presidio affair and the chaplain scam and everything that uh, was involved with it, so that anybody who really wants to go into it can do so and check out all the documentation. It's a huge book, about 500 pages long, guaranteed to bore you unless you're a true, true crime or true fake crime buff. And the name of it is... Um, 
Extreme Prejudice, and it's uh, by me, Michael Aquino, and you can find it on Amazon. So anybody who really wants to go into it, be my guest. Understood. Speaking of which, there's been another gentleman who's been very vocal, and of course, you're very familiar with who he is. Uh, that is one, Douglas Dietrich, who has been talking about you for a number of years, Michael. Well, Douglas Dietrich, as far as his uh, claims to know anything about me or have been associated with me, he's a flat-out liar, and he's just pulling this stuff out of thin air. There's a lot of strange I never, things he says, never heard by the way. Guy. Well, I'm sure. And I took a, a look at one of his uh, web pages one day at all the things that he claims for himself that has nothing to do with me. He was claiming to be involved with uh, commands of the U.S. Army that didn't exist after World War II, things like that. So I haven't really the time or the interest to try to sharpshoot uh, uh, Douglas Dietrich on anything that he might or might not make up about himself. But I would say right. that I hear you. Any, anybody that... Anybody that uh, uh, Anybody that interacts with him, I would simply say, uh, if if he makes a claim that's important to you, get independent documentation of it. Just don't take his word for it. I I, have, I would have to agree with you. The whole librarian thing is, is very strange. There's a look. There was I, I, he claimed I think what was it? He claimed to be the uh, caretaker of a classified library of the Presidio of San Francisco. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. the Presidio of San Francisco has a or you know when it was an army base. It had a perfectly ordinary library. There wasn't anything classified in it at all. You could go in there, read magazines, check out books, the whole business. In 6th Army headquarters, they didn't have classified libraries. They had offices that had some classified files in them, of course, but no libraries or anything like that. Yeah, he's a very strange so individual. Again, it's BS. Very odd. Well, he's, a, he's just a liar. I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, give him the time of day, frankly. Another pathological... Neurological liar, I see. At least as far as, uh, you know, I can't speak to what he's claimed about other things because, as I said, I haven't really looked into it in detail. I can tell you uh, flat out that he never had anything to do with me. He knows nothing about me from any prior contacts, and all that stuff is just, again, a flat-out lie. Understood. And, of course, your name was, once again, drew up. It was basically, your name was basically brought up uh, by another gentleman, I, I believe his name was Max Spears, and he's another conspiracy theorist out there, and it, mm-hmm. it just seems entirely made up uh, again. I, I looked into it myself. It is. And it just seems. It is. It, it seems so far fetched in my perspective. I've, 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 be, I've been accused of being, I think, uh, what's his name, uh, David Icke, Icke or something? Uh, David uh, Icke. That I'm a, uh-huh, yes. Thinks that I'm a lizard being from Venus. Oh, did, so he, did he say that? I, I, I've sort of thrown up my hands about uh, all the wild rumors that go on, but... Oh, no. Um, <laughs> that, that's embarrassing. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> anyway, uh, as I said, this, this stuff is nonsense and should be fairly obvious to anybody who knows me because my actual record is a matter of... of um, public record and it's very much there and uh, and I I'm obviously not a criminal person or I would have law enforcement people crawling all over me all the time. That's what I, I don't. Yeah, that's what I would figure and I thought that's what most people would figure by now. Yeah. I was investigated uh in 1987 because of the chaplain's accusations. Right. Uh by the FBI, the San Francisco police and the Army CID and they all verified that I was 3000 miles away. And that the child was an untouched virgin, 
and that there was absolutely no substance to it all. And the and the uh, investigations were closed, and uh, not so much as a letter of reprimand in my official file. Later on, when I retired from the Army, I was awarded the Meritorious Service Medal, which covered, among other things, the entire period of my service, uh, inclusive of that uh, time when the chaplain was trying to make his ac- accusations. After the, after the investigation was over, I went right back to the rest of my active career. Um, the investigation began in 1987, closed in about 1988-89, and uh, in 1990, uh, my next assignment was uh, four years at the U.S. Space Command uh, in Colorado Springs, where I held an above-top-secret clearance, which you definitely do not get if the government thinks that you are a pedophile or any other kind of criminal for that matter. Right, correct, correct. And, you know, we'll get into that in a minute here. And, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad we're having this discussion because lots of people out there make you out to be something that I, I believe you're not, in all honesty. I don't think there really are that many people anymore who really, uh, you know, believe in all that, that old nonsense. It was, it was fresh news in well, the late 80s because I was a private person. I hadn't been spending, I, I'd been refusing um, all sorts of interviews up until that time because the Temple of Set, which uh, I began in 1975, was a very, uh, a very privacy-oriented organization, which uh, deliberately was trying to avoid the kind of media over sensationalism that had been so troublesome for the Church of Satan. And because nothing was known about us, or nothing was known about me, except that I was a a black magician, you know, and a Satanist, and B, right. a psychological operations officer. Suddenly, I was an unknown quantity, and I was scary. And then, of course, everybody was running around uh, yelling and trying to find out about me. So I had to spend a lot of time in the media explaining myself, explaining the Temple of Set. And uh, uh, since then, I've given a reasonable amount of interviews, which anybody can find on the Internet, where Correct. I've been cross-examined yes. up and down. And my... Uh, as I said, my actual personality and what I do and don't do is pretty much an open book. I've written a dozen books that crisscross my philosophy in all these areas, and people are welcome to look at it for themselves. And uh, I don't think that people who really take the time to find out about me, I mean the real me and not some cartoon image. That's what they don't uh, do. Would have a that's problem. Tr- yeah, that's what they don't yeah. do. And I, I truly believe you yeah. were a victim of a media hit job. Yeah, and of course that's what the media does. Uh, right. It thrives on controversy. It thrives. What's the old fresh expression? Dirty laundry. Right, correct. And if it can, if it can make a, a fuss about things, um, then obviously it will. And and the combination of a psychological warfare officer who also does black magic ceremonies, and my God, he did one in Heinrich Himmler's castle in Germany. So he also must be a Nazi. Oh, so, you know, how can how can you how can you get scarier than this? You know, so um, yeah. sure, this stuff has been bouncing around conspiracy theory um, chat rooms, you know, for some time. For many years, and correct? To the, sure, mm-hmm. and to the extent that it's wacky and funny, I don't mind it. I only minded it when it was dangerous. You know, during the eighties, when uh, some sa- people were satanic panic. definitely right. Sure, when they were definitely trying to see uh, my wife and myself imprisoned for a fake crime. Were, were, people going, were, scary time. were people going after you? Like, were they trying to break into your home? Anything of that nature ever happened, Michael? 
Well, the first that I learned about the chaplain scam was at the end of my year at um, the industrial college when uh, my wife, Lowell, and I came home here to San Francisco, and we spent uh, uh, we were going to spend a couple of weeks here before going on to my next assignment in St. Louis. And one evening when we were hanging around the house watching TV, there was a knock at the door, and in came the San Francisco police and the FBI with a search warrant. And for the next several hours, they were turning the whole uh, house upside down, looking for evidence of child abuse. And we were standing there with our mouths open saying, what in the world is this? We didn't even know anything about the chaplain's accusations or anything else. Um, and of course, they didn't find anything, you know. Um, there were a couple of funny moments. I'm famous for my pointed eyebrows, right? So, um, those are great so eyebrows. Point, Those are great so eyebrows, point, by the way. Yeah, I've well, so it, and I've grown up with them my whole life. So at one point, Sandy Gallant, who was the San Francisco Police Department's uh, cult cop, was standing around in the bedroom while uh, one of the other cops found a picture. He found a photograph of a naked baby on a bearskin rug. And he said, look what I found. And Sandy looked at it, and she says, ah, oh, that's just Michael. Look at the look at the eyebrows. Ah, I see. So, uh <laughs> oh, that's so funny. So, so it was uh, it was basically a a uh, complete loss as an evening. They didn't find anything because, of course, we hadn't done anything. Yeah. But uh, yes, I mean that's what happens when when an accusation gets made, and if there's a search warrant served, you can expect to have your home broken into and everybody turn it upside down. And do you think that's so, possibly how? Well, you know how there were implications of these children accurately describing your inside of your home. Do you believe that's probably how they came up with that? Well, they, because someone they, broke well, into your they home. Didn't. None, none of the children did. If you care to look at all the details of that, and I mean all the details of that, yes, including the misreporting by the newspapers uh, that said that they did, then uh, uh, again, take a look at that book, Extreme Prejudice, because it has all the documents in there, including the original police reports, and the interviews with Adams Thompson and, and his wife, where they made up allegations like this, but none of the stuff fit our, our home at all. And anything after that, of course, um, after, after the raid, after the search warrant was served, then of course the Channel 2 television came through and did a, a shoot, you know, throughout our apartment in an interview. Yes. And anybody who cared to watch that, of course, would uh, have a bird's eye view of what the interior of our home looked like. But the, to make a long story short, there was not a single uh, child anywhere who made an accurate allegation of what the interior of anything in our home looked like, period. And Understood. that's the hard, hard facts of it. Understood. And, and anybody who mm -hmm. wants, anybody who wants to chase me on that, as I said, go pick up a copy of that book because everything is in there. Everything from the police reports, the chaplain's complaints, the FBI reports, everything. Yeah, I so believe, it's all in there. I, I believe I owned a copy of that, but now I can't find it. Well, it's a big book. It's about yeah, the size of right. a telephone directory. It's green. Yes. It's 500 um, pages long. <laughs> it's, it's probably huge. It's probably in the closet. I, yeah, I well, I wrote it, it for – it's a good thing to put yourself to sleep with, you know, because it's not written for fun. It was a huge documentary yeah, yeah, there's a lot that in I there. wrote, mm -hmm. and I wrote it to set the record straight because I – said to myself, you know, there, for years people are going to be coming back and this and that myth about the Presidio events of 87, so I'm going to take all the original documents, you know, from the accuser's side, from the defense's side, the whole shebang, and collect it all in this one book, and then anybody who wants to look it up, 
you know, can find it and find all the original citations and uh, be my guest. You can find so that still. That to, yeah, and you can find that still today on Amazon, correct? Oh, sure. It's uh, it's permanently in print on Amazon, and it's also there as an ebook, as a Kindle book. Perfect. Now, once again, going back into time here, back into the late '60s, I, I believe there's a photograph uh, of you and uh, Sammy Davis Jr. Yeah, that was in 1973. Oh, that was in '73. Uh, yes. Yes, and. Uh, the story behind that is that those were the days of the Church of Satan, which functioned as an organization from 1966 to 1975. And uh, at that time, I was uh, a uh, master of the temple of the Church of Satan, which is one step down from Anton. We were good, close friends. Uh, I was living in Santa Barbara. He was living in San Francisco, of course. And Sammy Davis had made a television movie with Christopher Lee called Poor Devil, which was about a sort of an inept uh, assistant demon who was trying to uh, get in good with the boss, Satan, uh, played by Christopher Lee, by uh, getting a someone to sell his soul. And he was having a hard time of it. So it was a, a, a comic comic movie. But at one point in it, uh, Sammy said, uh, I've got a report to the boss. I wonder how I can get a hold of him. Oh, I know. I'll call the Church of Satan downtown. They'll probably have a, a phone number. So... I was amused by that line. I uh, called up Anton and I said, I think we ought to make uh, Mr. Davis an honorary member if he's interested. And uh, Anton uh, said, yeah, I think that would be fun. Go ahead. So I wrote a letter to Sammy and said, we enjoyed your movie. We thought it was very tastefully done and in good spirits. Uh, we'd love to award you an honorary membership. And Sammy wrote me back and said, that would be nice. Why don't you uh, uh, come and visit me during the uh, performance that I'm about to give at the Circle Star Theater in Belmont next month, and you can present it to me on stage there. So I did. Uh, Anton's daughter, Carla LeVay, and I went down uh, to the Circle Star Theater, and uh, during one of the uh, acts there, went up on stage, brought up by Sammy, and we presented him with a medallion of the Church of Satan to, to the audience's astonishment, you know. But uh, he was a very gracious man, uh, very friendly, very nice, very sincere. The photo that you see there was from about a, uh, a year or so later when he was again back up in the Bay Area, back at the Circle Star, as a matter of fact, and he invited Anton and me and uh, Anton's wife, Diane, to come down and have dinner with him and uh, socialize a little bit after dinner, which we did. So that's the time of that photograph. Seems like a good time. Yeah, he was a very, times. very nice man. You know, he's a, he's one of these people who... Uh, came up through life the hard way. Uh, of course, he worked his way up, you know, as, as a member of his father's uh, vaudeville troupe. And the person who gave him his first big break uh, was uh, Frank Sinatra. And later on in his memoirs, Sammy said, I was introduced uh, to the Church of Satan by somebody very much like, uh, by, like, very much like Frank, which I took as a compliment. <laughs> right, right. Yes. No doubt. I'm just wondering now, uh, was he, well, of course he was into everything. I, I'm just thinking about all, all, all the parties that there must have been, uh, all these parties going on in, in, in the San Francisco area. And, uh, did you ever party with him at all? Just curious. No, um, the, the reality of Sammy Davis Jr., you know, behind his, his, Las Vegas image, you know, as a member of the Rat Pack of, of Frank Sinatra. Yeah. Was he, he was a rather modest and, and unassuming gentleman. 
he was married at that time to Altavis, uh, his his wife, again, a very uh, dignified lady. I went down and visited her one time when she was in the hospital for an illness in, in uh, Hollywood there. And uh, behind the Behind the requirements of being a public figure and a and somebody in showbiz, the Davises were very very conservative and very pleasant people. You know, you wouldn't find a four letter word escaping from either of their mouths. Mm, um, they were they were as I said dignified and rather on the conservative side, and they valued uh, people by their character. They were very loyal to their friends. There were a number of people who they had. Um, worked with all through their careers and uh, had brought along with them. Um, I became particularly friends, good friends, with Sammy's uh, road manager, uh, another black gentleman who'd been with him since vaudeville days, and we used to uh, goof off around Hollywood, um, go out and have some dinner at the Magic Castle there, things like that. So uh, it was a very, very pleasant uh, association. It wasn't, it wasn't, if you're sort of, Looking to see if there were some wild, you know, mad sex parties or orgies. Sure. Uh, at least not, not that I was either involved with with him and nothing that I actually that came to, uh, uh, came to my attention about his lifestyle. Understood. So he was just a pleasant guy when you interacted with him. I, I understand. I, th- I thought so. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he struck yeah. me as very pleasant, very mature. Um, sometimes, you run into people in, in showbiz, particularly in the younger generations who have gotten sort of too much money too fast and have been part of the drug scene or right. the alcohol scene right. and shoot themselves down. And we can come up with examples, very sad ones, you know, whether it's Jim Morrison of the Doors or, oh, yes. or uh, um, Janis Joplin, you know, Big Brother, uh, people who live too hard too fast and destroy themselves and 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 generally just just uh, overcome themselves with personal catastrophe. But somebody like Sammy Davis Jr. was just simply not that kind of a person. He had worked very hard and very slowly over the years for everything he got, and he valued his dignity and his health and his family. Excellent. Now, let's go over the period where you essentially broke away from the Church of Satan and formed the Temple of Said. Let's go into that now. Well, the Church of Satan, as I mentioned before, had um, a couple of features. One, it was very sincere about itself. It was not a, a hypocritical institution. It worshipped the devil, the Judeo-Christian Satan, but it understood this as a principle opposed to the randomness of non-conscious nature, what you might call the objective universe, this was a principle of individual consciousness apart from that totality of nature. So that totality of nature is what people would, what people uh, personalize as God or Jehovah or collectively as natural gods. And in ancient Egypt, they were known as the Neturu, uh, from which we get our modern word nature. So Satan, as we understood him, was the principle of consciousness opposed to this or distinct from it which is how each of us is an independent, conscious individual who can look out at everything that surrounds us, have an opinion about it, take a stand about it, study it, and generally have a perspective concerning it. So that is how we understood uh, this principle of Satan. And if you were talking about sin, it was not that he was a uh, somebody who was evil. His sin was separateness, that he had broken away from being just simply a non-conscious part of this large universe, and was now outside of it, 
as a as a conscious entity. So that separateness was what we were uh, focusing on and worshiping. It, it had nothing to do with with uh, simplistic morality per se. And indeed, I would have to go on and say that the Church of Satan was actually intensely moral because we didn't come up with uh, excuses for bad behavior, such as the devil made me do it, or or I was forced to, or you know Certainly. something like that. We we always maintained this this position that you are completely responsible for every decision you make and every deed you do, and the only person who's going to be in the hot seat for it is not the devil or somebody else, but you. You know, so we we had, if anything, a very strict moral atmosphere in the Church of Satan that way. And as I mentioned earlier, our other stance had to do with hypocrisy, that uh, we felt that society generally had an overdose of hypocrisy, and institutional religion also had an overdose of hypocrisy. So we were very adamant that we were going to be honest and sincere in the stances that we took. So what happened was that in 1975, Anton Louvet suddenly made a, a decision, uh, which he announced to me and expected for me to put in the newsletter, that uh, the degrees, the initiatory degrees of the Church of Satan were going to henceforth be available for cash contributions and donations, as well as personal achievement and attainment and study. And I went back to him and I said, I, I think I misunderstood you here, you know, because you can't say that you could just buy a degree, I mean, uh, or buy the priesthood. And he said, well, that's exactly what I do want. I do want contributions uh, to the church, and I want to be able to um, award the priesthood and other degrees uh, in exchange for those. And I said, you can't do this. I said, this this puts a lie to everything that we're in. It makes a mockery of the priesthood. It makes a mockery of our integrity. And he said, basically, shut up and print it. Ooh. I said, I'm sorry. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I can't do that. I said, I'm, if, if, I, if that's the choice that you leave, I'm going to have to resign. And I did, and it caused me an enormous amount of shock and personal pain. And the details of all this, including all the correspondence at that time, is related in my book called The Church of Satan, which is a history of that institution. It's also, also in print. And the, to make a long story short, I told the, I, I told the church um, generally what I was, why I was leaving, and almost everybody left with me, and... Um, together we formed the Temple of Set and continued it forward uh, as an organization of strict integrity, which it has remained ever since. Very, That's how the Temple of Set very, came to be founded. Very nice. And, you're, and the, the name mm-hmm. change, the name change came about because at the time, one of the problems that we had always run into was that the term Satan was, of course, a, an invention originally of Judeo-Christianity, going back to the original Hebrews. And it was, by definition, a negative term and an evil term. And despite the fact that we had put a positive interpretation on it uh, in the tradition of people like you know, John Melton and Mark Twain and others who had, who had focused on the heroism and the nobility of it, it still was sort of stuck as a negative term, as, as, a, as, as symbolic of evil and badness. And despite the fact that we had worked against that, we were always sort of pushing uphill on that. So one of the things that we did in 1975 was to completely um, discard the entire Judeo-Christian iconography altogether and go back to ancient Egypt, where we found uh, set as the ancient Egyptian symbol of the same independence of spirit that we were interested in. 
So that's that's how the name changed and the context changed, and it's uh, it worked out uh, turned out very well because it enabled us to keep going forward without any of those having to deal with any of those old stereotypes. Understood. And were you able to ever hash things out with with Anton? No, unfortunately not. Um, it was a very, a very shocking, a very unhappy, and a very sad parting of ways for me. Um, I, see. I over the years, I occasionally would send him letters, uh, in which I hoped that some kind of reconciliation might be possible. Um, I wanted him to be able to see what we were doing with the Temple of Set, that it was not not done as some kind of a power grab, but it was done simply as an act of preservation of principles. And uh, uh, I also, of course, that book that I referred to, The Church of Satan, which is another huge book. It's a two-volume book. It's about a thousand pages long, and again, about the size of a phone book, also available on Amazon. I started writing that as a comprehensive history of the church in about 1982, and I've been revising it and updating it since then, until it reached its final form, which is the one published uh, today and available on Amazon. And uh, all the way along, I would send him copies of the current edition and say, if there's anything in here that you think is unfair or unjust or not representative of the truth, please let me know and I'll be happy to address it. And he never he never did, nor did Diane, his wife. Oh, well, so, that's, uh, that's terrible. Or, or Carlo or Zena, his daughters, for that matter. And many years later, when I became friends with uh, Zena again, um, she essentially ador- endorsed the book, said, yes, you know, everything in here is quite fair and quite correct. And, you know, that's the way it was. So that's the, that's uh, it. I, I had always sort of hoped kind of wistfully, you know, that we might be able to reconcile somehow with Anton before he uh, reached the end of his time here. Right. That just simply wasn't to be. It would have been a lot of fun if he could have attended one of our international gatherings and been a guest speaker and gotten an honorary membership and gotten a standing ovation and all that. Kind of one of my dreams. It just didn't happen. That's just the way it goes sometimes, the roll of the dice. Yeah. Uh-huh. And ultimately, of course, the problem was that I think he he couldn't help but realize after the fact that what he had done was a betrayal, you know, a betrayal of the Prince of Darkness, a betrayal of himself, a betrayal of us. And it's pretty hard when you've done something like that to to completely, you know, I guess internally apologize to yourself and everybody else for something like that. And I guess that was a big part of it. It's nothing that we that anybody else could do anything about. It was just simply something he was stuck with. You and I know that there have been various times in our lives when we've really stuck our foot in it someplace. Oh, of course. And of course. sometimes we've stuck our foot in it to the point where, you know, we say, oh, God, you know, for the rest of my life, I'm going to be carrying this albatross around my neck. And I guess after a while, it's just something I'm just going to have to live with because I can't, you know, um, can't undo it. All I can do is learn from it, apologize to anybody that I accidentally hurt, and get on with life. You know? Understood. Yes. And, and you're open to take calls tonight, are you, sir? Oh, sure. Okay, excellent. I, I believe I'm going to bring someone in right now. Uh, let's see what's going on here. Hey. Uh, there you are. W- what's going on, Mike? How are you? Oh, my God. I hate computers so much. Hi. Well, you are live on the air with myself and Dr. Michael Aquino. Ah, That's all three Michael. of us are Michaels, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> Sacred numbers at, at, at play, Michael. Mr. Aquino, uh, uh, Dr. Aquino, I just want to say it's an honor to speak to you again. Uh, as I told you last time, I have a lot of respect for you on what you've done. So 
it's a great honor to speak with you uh, and get given the opportunity to be part of this interview. So hello to you and hello to Michael. All right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate that. I've always you know, tried to be useful to other people. So when I, I hear these kinds of reactions, it tells me I, I must be doing something okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, it's, it's, I, I have a lot of respect for you for the things that you've done over the years. So much, lots of respect. Thank you. Thank you. And the parrot's saying hi to you, Mr. Aquino. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. my, my parrot's name is Captain. He's in the background here. He'll, uh, I'm sure he'll say hello every once in a while. <laughs> okay. Well, we live in, we don't have any parrots around here, but we have uh, a building here that's all full of cats and dogs. We're animal lovers and Lilith and I are involved in all sorts of animal rescue and sanctuary events around the country. And, uh, this building I think has, has got more, more, more people with four feet in it than with two feet. And since all the doors are open, they just run around to seeing who's got the current best layout of food at any one time in any one place. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's good to know you guys have a big heart for animals. Yeah, Michael, you have cats, don't you? Yes, we have cats now. I've, I've, I used to have dogs, but uh, not right now. I had a, a Weimaraner when I was a kid, and then later on an Irish setter named Brandy. And uh, But since then, uh, again, because of our lifestyle here, uh, mostly cats. Usually two or three at any time. Love cats, by the way. Mm-hmm, it's al- it's always fun when I'm interviewing someone and you can hear cats in the background. It it, it adds to the program, I, I think. <laughs> it gives a little character. Uh, Mike, by the way, Mike, you missed me and uh, Dr. Aquino going over the history of of his life. We we went over some of the golden periods and the good times, and and we went through some of the bad times. And, of course, it's been good times the entire time. And right now, I want to get into some more current uh, current time politics right now. And we aren't far removed from the anniversary of 9-11. It's been 16 years in the making. Wow. I, I just wanted to ask both of you, uh, Doctor and Mike, um, how both of you feel uh, about the whole event that Tuesday morning. And I'm going to ask both of you now. Uh, to comment on that. And let's go with you, Dr. Aquino. Uh, do you remember what was going on that morning of September? Yes, as a matter of fact, I, I was sitting in my dentist's office getting my teeth whitened. And while I was sitting there in the chair waiting for the stuff to dry, I was watching a little television monitor that was up on the wall, which was, of course, looking at all the stuff going on in New York. And I was as stunned by everything, I suppose, as everybody else. When I saw the two buildings drop down instantly into their footprints, I said to myself, oh, controlled demolition. And I've never changed my mind since then. I mean, to me, it was just flat out obvious. Buildings like that, uh, you know, uh, if they're hit up top, they are going to come down bloop, like this one after the other. Right. They're going to, if they come down at all, it's going to be a long, slow mess. If you look at the end of, of uh, Lord of the Rings, where where Frodo managed to throw the ring into into Mount Doom, and then uh, Sauron's uh, Barad-dûr uh, tower tipped over. It tipped over, you know, and yeah. it went down on its side. Okay, <laughs> right. So if the if something was going to happen, it would have been slow motion, and it would have been gradual, and it certainly wouldn't have been two neat little drops into their footprints like that. So to me, that was um, that was just an instant uh, explanation that it was an inside job and that it was a controlled demolition and after that 
I really didn't, uh, I mean, I mean, there was nothing more to make of it except that it, I assumed that it was the Bush administration coming up with a, uh, a stunt to give George an excuse for going in and invading Iraq and Afghanistan. Yes. And I never really mm-hmm. bothered to take it, you know, much further than that because I thought it was so obvious at the time. It, it people in the United it. States, mm-hmm. people in the United States have this feeling that, gee, our government could never kill a whole lot of us just to, you know, just to create an artificial Pearl Harbor uh, for itself. Well, I've got news for you. Governments do these kinds of things, and they're called false flag operations. They do them routinely these days. Ever since World War II and the United Nations Charter, it's unfashionable to just declare war because you want somebody else's territory. You have to have an excuse. You have to have a reason. You have to have something to get to, to that drives you to it. And therefore, if, if, if somebody isn't going to attack you, you have to come up with a fake attack and say, okay, here we go. Now we have to get even. Understood. Wow. That's interesting that you said that because I just had on Mr. Richard Gage, who is an architect, and I think he's one of the founders of Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth, and he goes over uh, Building 7, and he says it's a classic controlled demolition. So, obviously, you're not alone in, in this belief. And, uh, you know... Well, so are Buildings 1 and 2, well, classic cra- controlled yeah. demolition. You know, personally, it You looks- don't have skyscrapers that are built like that, that tall, and have them just come down because a couple of planes hit them. Jeez, give me a break. And, uh, Mike. That's like, that's like mm-hmm. the, that's like the Kennedy assassination when you, when you see Kennedy shot from the front and the back of his head blows off and the guy in the government for years is saying, oh, well, well, you know, he was still shot from the back. No. <laughs> I'm very glad you are in this mindset. And Mike, um, what's going on with you and, um, 9-11? Do you believe that it was a controlled demolition? Or what's your thoughts on all of this? Uh, well, gentlemen, um, it's a very good question. And, 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 uh, Michael, we discussed this, uh, several times in the past. Uh, oh, yes. About conspiracy theories on 9-11. I have always been, <clears throat> being a flag-waving American that I am, uh, I love my country. Um, I've always supported my country, even though, on, even though I've had my issues with it, I always felt it to be my duty to, um, not believe that it was something caused by our government. I mean, look, obviously, that's not something I want to hear. It's not something I want to believe. No one whether does. No one Of does. course not. Right. No, you're right. And I mean, whether it's true or not, I'll, I'll never be able to know for sure. I need, I'm, I'm a person, Captain, shut up, please. I need, absolute, <laughs> excuse me, I need yeah. absolute positive proof when I'm on a, you know, it's, for me, it's just like knowing whether or not there's a God. I need solid proof. I need to know, you know, are there, are there UFOs out there? Um, you know, I need proof. And it's very difficult to understand or, or try to comprehend whether or not it was an inside job. As Mr. Aquino just said, um, I'm sorry, do you prefer Dr. Aquino or Mr. Aquino? Well, since all three of us are named Michael, I would usually say just call me Michael. Uh, Dr. Aquino is probably the easiest way to distinguish it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Like, just so I'm clear, I, I just want to make sure I know what to call you. Um, I love that, by the way. Yeah, that, that works. That power. That's probably, that's probably the least, that's probably the least pompous term. I'm also a British baron, so you could call me your lordship too, but I think lordship. Dr. Aquino is okay. Love that. <laughs> I, I think you're the I think you're the only fully grown adult male I would actually call that too. 
Well, anyway, like like I was saying, it, it it's very complicated for me to, to to wrap my head around something like a conspiracy theory and to think that our own government would do something like that. I certainly don't want to believe that. Uh, whether or not it's true, I simply cannot say. I, I you know, I never liked Bush, never liked uh, Hussein Obama, and um, uh, I have recently come to the point. In fact, I was just talking to my fiance tonight about how um, I really feel that I really have no more faith in government anymore. I truly believe something terrible is happening to this country. There's, I just don't see the patriotism anymore. Not to get off the subject, but what I'm saying is that it's hard to believe in a government that, um, you, you know, you just don't know what to believe in it anymore. I really, I'm confused uh, and I'm lost. I really, I really don't know what to think anymore. Yeah, and you're right. It's, it's sad that so many people died for uh, whatever that was that happened on 9/11 16 years ago. Well, this has been, you know, this has been going on for a long time. In other words, the uh, at least since the Spanish-American War and the and the blowing up of the battleship Maine, which gave us an excuse to steal all of the stuff that France or that Spain had stolen from the French and from the uh, native inhabitants here. And of course, we invaded Hawaii for no reason whatever and. Uh, and extinguished its uh, its natural government, and uh, we've been you know we, we we've been doing the same. How do you think we how do you think we got a hold of the United States in the first place? You know we ripped it off from the British, of course, and we ripped it off from the French and from the Spanish, who had ripped it off from the Native Americans, who are were almost exterminated and annihilated here in one of the biggest genocides you know of history. So that's the. You know, that's the, the legacy of the United States. I mean, I, I'm not saying that we need to pour ashes over our heads. I'm just saying that the, the history of humanity is a pretty rough one, and we have to kind of look at it in all fairness and uh, say, okay, here's what we've got to work with, and if we're going to be decent people, you know, we can only uh, work our way up from here. And, you know, to, to sort of segue a little backwards here, that was one of the reasons that I was as interested as I was in the original position of anti-hypocrisy uh, for the Church of Satan, that it was an intensely honest institution that took humanity as it is and not as it pretends to be and works up from that and says that, yes, you know, you should be a good person and you should advocate good things. Uh, and you should do so because of your own personal integrity and not because somebody either bribes or threatens you into it. So when you look at these political events recently, this is nothing new. This has been going on for, for quite a long time. Uh, we'd, you know, the, the British had broken the Japanese codes uh, of, the, of the Japanese Navy before Pearl Harbor, and Churchill and Roosevelt both knew, and this is a matter of documentary record if you want to poke into it, that the attack on Pearl Harbor was was coming. And they didn't yeah. tell Admiral Hummel about this because they wanted Pearl Harbor to happen so that the United States would have an excuse to get into the war on the side of Britain and go after Nazi Germany. And uh, that's wow. just what happened. Then it's interesting. And, uh, uh-huh. Oops, sorry, go yeah. So this has been going on. This has been going on all the way along. Uh, the, of course, we know about the Gulf of Tonkin incident that right. never happened. Correct. And we know about uh, the assassination of John Kennedy shortly after he had issued a national security memorandum, which was planning to pull all U.S. forces out of uh, Vietnam by 1975. And the first thing that Lyndon Johnson did when he sat down in the White House was reverse it. And so away we went with the Vietnam War. So... This kind of thing is going on all the time, and yes, you know, the, if you want a villain, if you want a devil here, it's money. People are making money by war, and Absolutely. I wrote a, in my recent book called Mind War, you know, I sort of hang, 
hang these profiteers out to dry very, very intensely. I say that that uh, these people who are trading uh, blood for money and are always happy to see wars as a constant thing going on so that they can profit from it, uh, th- these are disgusting people. And to the extent that we can expose them and take a stand against them and tell them to, you know, if you excuse my French, to fuck off, uh, then we should. I'm a, I'm right. a professional propagandist. You know, I've been involved in in propaganda since I went through the PSYOP school in 1969, and a lot of people think I'm the... Uh, the most expert person in the entire government, you know, in this field. And I wouldn't personally deny that. And exactly. I would say that, that governments lie. They lie all the time. You have Correct. to, you have to, you have to, they lie, they can't help themselves. That's right. And go, so what? you've got to, you've mm-hmm. got to come at this from a standpoint of your personal integrity. And when you find something, then you just simply shine a light on it and you say, this sucks and I'm not going along with it and I'm going to take a stand against it and uh, do what I can. And Mike, Doctor, oh, no, go, I'm sorry, I, I got to ask this go question, ahead, go Doctor. Ahead. Um, your history, uh, um, from what I understand, you're a Vietnam vet, were you not? Yes. Okay. So, knowing that, what sort of advice would you give to people in this, on these days, in these times that we live in, <laughs> that someone can truly say, "How can I survive in this world and what's happening?" Do you, I mean, do you see America falling? Do, do, do you even believe in this country anymore? What, what sort of advice would you give to people about what's happening in this country and how to survive? I think that the, the American character, in other words, the character of Mr. and Mrs. Average American is a good one, and that people who are Americans generally, you know, we don't, this isn't a country where we want to be evil or do evil or go out and savage the rest of the world. Uh, this is not, this is not something like Nazi Germany that views us as, as a sort of a master race that needs to enslave everybody else. But, um, you know, so as far as the American character goes, I have a good feeling about it. Uh, I spent uh, over 30 years, of course, on active duty in the armed forces. I saw a lot of different people in a lot of different parts of the government. And generally, I saw people who wanted to do the good thing and the right thing and were trying to help things get better, whether it was on the military side of it or in the intelligence side of it. A lot of people think that the CIA is an evil institution, but I met a lot of people in the CIA who were honestly trying to do the best that they could to, um, you know, to expose bad information and provide it to uh, leaders so that they could make corrective good decisions. I didn't find people, you know, um, pulling out fingernails, things like this, and I was really shocked and really pissed off, you know, when all that information came out about the CIA torture programs and black stuff that was going on during the Iraq business. And I called up a lot of my uh, friends and retired friends in the CIA, and they felt exactly the same. They felt betrayed. They were violently pissed. They said, you know, we didn't build up this institution so a few nuts could bring it its reputation into the gutter like this. And when you have, you know, something bad like that happen, then of course it's very hard to, to correct it. You know, um, Germany is still feeling, uh, guilty for the way it behaved, you know, prior and during World War II. And the CIA is going to have a long time to quit feeling guilty for the misbehavior that it did during the uh, Iraq and Bush times. And, uh, that's, you know, as I said, you can, you, you can, Apologize all you like, but some things you just can't undo, and you're just so going to have to do you, straighten it out. Do you, do you but think I think yes, on, on I think the people of the United States are good. So do you, do you think the country's on the road to destruction with the government? Uh, I mean, everything's a mess right no. now. No, I think that I think that on the whole, the 
the United States has a positive view of itself. And what you see right now is a kind of a morality play because people are being, being unusually vocal about what they think is, is good and bad. And I think that that's healthy. If you saw everybody being silent and, uh, and obedient one way or the other, as you tended to, for example, during the Bush time, on, in the direction of the right, or as in the Obama time, during the, in the ways on the left, um, that bothers me because that means to me that that suggests to me as a propagandist that that uh, a bill of goods is being sold one way or the other. Right now, uh, we've got Archie Bunker, you know, in the White House, um, who who speaks his mind and speaks his mind. Uh, as far as I can tell, without spending a whole lot of time trying to cushion it beforehand and make sure that it, it panders to one agenda or the other. He just says what he feels like saying, and then he gets judged on the basis of it. And some people kick his ass, and other people pat him on the head. I, I, I generally like that kind of a atmosphere. It kind of reminds me of, of you know, Teddy Roosevelt and Abraham Lincoln and, and uh, other people who have taken taken their lumps, you know, for things that they felt were important to them. And I think that that says that we've got a pretty healthy country here right now where we're engaging in. I, I don't I don't go as far as feeling happy about uh, fist fights, you know, in the streets between the Activa or whatever it is, uh, or Antifa, Antifa, Antifa and, Antifa, and the right. Nazis. Mm-hmm. So I wish they'd just sort of back off, you know, and uh, and just get into some good uh, coffee discussions on it. But I, I, <laughs> right. I, I'm I'm generally I'm generally enthusiastic about the the integrity of the average American right now, and that he cares about this stuff because that's obvious that a lot of people care about it and are talking about it and thinking about it and arguing it out. That's good. That's that's the best part of what democracy is all about. Uh, do you consider yourself to be a patriotic American? Oh, you bet your ass. Good for you. <laughs> right. <laughs> I went uh, I went to Vietnam. You know, I, I I didn't go there because I felt like I wanted to kill Vietnamese. I went there because I was taking that's a stand on behalf of of communist expansion. And and as time passed, I realized that it was a lot more gray area than that. You know, it wasn't. There were a lot of nationalistic and anti-colonial things going back and forth there, so it wasn't as black and white as it had been painted. And you can say the same thing about World War II, that uh, World War II wasn't a black and white war either. It wasn't that we were all good and they were all bad. There were a lot of, of massive destructions of innocent people conducted by the Allies, firebombing of Dresden, you know, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and the rest of it. And um, so nobody, nobody came out of World War II with clean hands either. It just has to do with what you what you personally what your personal standards are and your integrity. Right. I hear the, you. The reason I asked you that question, if I may, just just uh, uh, mm-hmm. kind of be specific on it, is knowing your where where you went uh, eventually. Uh, I mean, I know you were in um, the service when you began working with uh, Doctor Levey uh, with the Church of Satan. And then I know eventually, you know, you came out and you started the Temple of Set. But mm-hmm. there are a lot of people who, when they go the left, I'm, I'm, I'm part of the left-hand path. I, I've studied Satanism and the occult for, oh my gosh, since uh, 2006. And, okay, um, cool. So, you know, I, I, I consider myself... And a parrots. Member, and parrots. <laughs> and you study parrots. Exactly. Um, so what I'm getting at is a lot of people who... Tend to go to the left side, become part of the left agenda, either in uh, democratic uh, or liberalism or politically correct, and you know that whole left opposite. 
opposite of the right captains. I'm having a very serious discussion. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, the reason I ask that is because knowing what your history is coming from the, the, the United States military and, and, and standing up for your country and, and feeling that you were doing the right thing. I like, I know you didn't go there to me. That's obvious. Nobody goes into, to, you know, into the service just to kill. Well, maybe they do, but I'm assuming you didn't. So, and, and you're saying you didn't. What I'm getting at is, is again, you, you took a completely different path than what we would probably say most veterans who have served the United States uh, military. You became Dr. Aquino, you, you, the creator of, uh, you know, the co-creator of, of the Church of Satan and the creator of the Temple of Set. This is a completely alternate route than the normal American takes. So that's why I had to ask that question. Well, let me go back to when I uh, was an ROTC cadet at UC Santa Barbara. And at that point, I learned that the Army had this thing called psychological operations as one of its specialties. And even before I graduated and was commissioned, I took the correspondence course from Fort Bragg in PSYOP because I said to myself, this is cool. The Army has a way of fighting wars and battles without hurting anybody. It just argues, you know, it, 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 uh, whether you, it either argues or it bullshits or something, but it's a way of solving problems without hurting anybody or blowing anything up. And I said, that's the kind of part of the army that I'm interested in. And that's where I became a specialist, you know, for the entire rest of my career. And the most recent thing I did in, uh, of course, 2012, revised in 2016, is to write the book Mind War, which is circulating throughout the government right now, which argues for uh, it argues against the entire um, addressing of international problems by violence, which I call fizz war or physical war, and replacing it with a non-violent, um, proactive correction of these things called mind war, which addresses the entire architecture of human consciousness that is caused by external influences and how we can correct those and address them. So I've taken almost everything that I've learned in academics, in the military, in all my research, in the intelligence fields, everything, and, of course, in my initiatory work, and put it into that book and say, here's how we can get rid of the violence, get rid of the murder, get rid of the massacres, and solve problems through a new way of addressing them, which actually goes into the way that human the human mind functions at its subconscious and conscious levels. And this book also revises the branches of the Army and Special Operations called Special Forces, PSYOP, and civil affairs into next generation ones called mind war, uh, metaphors, and uh, parapolitics, and redesigns them to function in uh, in furtherance of this uh, kind of a program. I followed that book up this last year with one called FineFar, which addresses the the um, program as it's implemented over a period of time in a campaign and um, shows essentially the the uh, procedures to implement it. These books are making their way around the government right now. They're also available to the public because I, I don't believe in keeping this kind of stuff secret. I believe that everybody has a right to look at it, think about it, know about it. And that's, again, part of my, that's part of why I became involved in the, uh, United States Armed Forces to begin with. Not just because, uh, of, of PSYOP in its original sense, but because I think that we have the ability through the information that's at our disposal to really dial down and stop all the nas- all the violence that's going on around the globe. We have it. We have the information. I wrote it down in that book, and now all we have to do is kind of resolve to do it. And the, the primary thing that stands in the way is just simply the 
um, all the people who are busy making money from uh, selling wars, and that's a big moral issue. Like, I don't know how to push that except to publicize it and basically take a principled stand against it. Understood. But I at least, at least wanted to write this down and say, you guys want to know how to stop this shit? Here's how to stop this shit. <laughs> yes, and, and Dr. <laughs> Doctor, there, there's another gentleman here who I believe has a question for you. Um, caller, you are free to talk now. Go ahead. Hello. What's Th- up? There you are. Hello. Can you? Hello. What's up? Getting a little louder. Can you turn or speak a little closer into your microphone? Hello. Hello. Oh, there you All are. Right. Nice. What's going on, my my friend? Hello. Uh oh. Yeah, we can hear you. Can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, go for your question, brother. What's going on? All right. Man, this is like a convergence of three mics. This is true. <laughs> did, did you have a question for Dr. Aquino or either one of the Michaels? I'm talking about this is a convergence of three mics. You it know is. what I'm saying? Right. Absolutely. Well, three mics and one parrot, anyway. <laughs> Michael Deacon, take over, brother. Paul, did you have a question? Well, what's up? Yeah, I can hear you, and we're talking about this is like a convergence yes, of three mics. Right, we heard that, yes. <laughs> so you know what? There's like the one mic, you know, it, it's like, what is the show number for this? What What's the show number for this? Oh, you're you're dropping out there. Dead airspace mic. Yeah, Paul. I know it's an amazing thing. So I've known both of these mics, like, uh, in the 90s. Like, I saw Michael Aquino on TV and stuff in the 90s. And then I also saw, like, Mike Hideous when I, like, played in goth bands. Wow. <laughs> yeah, those were the days. Well. Wow. Paul, did you have a question for Mr. Aquino? I want to know what these guests think about atheism and how atheism connects with Satanism and the left-hand path. Dr. Aquino? Well, um, the question of atheism, of course, bounces off the question of believing in some kind of a theism also. And why should you, you know, believe in one or the other? Uh, the, it, it seems that the, the sort of the fallback attitude, the one where you don't get in trouble, is to be an agnostic and say, well, I really don't know enough to make up my mind one way or the other. So I'll play it safe and say, I don't know whether I should believe in the existence of a god or multiple gods or whether I should believe that there isn't one because I don't have enough information. And I think the other Mike uh, said something like this earlier, that he was yes. not only somewhat skeptical about uh, the the current state of affairs in the United States, but he also was trying to figure out WTF, you know, with all this business about religion and gods. Well, I've been asked this several times over the years, and what I say is this. I can prove to you the existence of a god or gods in, a, in about a paragraph, and it isn't even very hard. And it's simply this, that um, we live in a universe, a, a physical universe. We're surrounded by a physical universe, or what I call the objective universe of things and forces, this is your matter, mass, and energy universe that behaves according to what's called natural law, meaning that atoms and molecules behave in a certain way and do not uh, do not stray from it. There is a there is an ironclad natural law that applies to the entire universe around us and is simply not broken and not violated. Now you ask yourself, okay, here's this large erector set around us. And it's governed by these laws. Who enforces them? Who is it? Why should these things be mandatory from one moment to the next? Why should a an oak tree remain an oak tree from one moment to the next and not turn into a fire hydrant or an Irish setter 
randomly? <laughs> and the answer is that there is there is an enforcement that is above and beyond the existence of natural law that keeps it functioning. That enforcement of natural law is what most people would uh, personify as a god or gods. The mistake they make is that thinking that the proof of a god or gods is in seeing a violation of natural law. In other words, a miracle. So the ancient Hebrews would say, well, if the Red Sea gets parted, that proves that God exists because everybody knows that according to nature and natural law, the Red Sea can't part. Well, that's that's BS. You know, that's a fiction and that's a fable. And people ever since then have been looking for proof of a God or gods and saying, but by violation of the enforcement of natural law will prove that there is a God. That would prove that there isn't one or that it's, it's fallible and that it is... Uh, and that it is not as, as overwhelming as a true universal God principle is. So this enforcement of natural law, whether you want to say that it's a unity, a single God, or it's a multiplicity, a number of gods, or as the Egyptians called them, the Neturu, that is the reality of a God that occupies and controls the entire natural universe. So there is the proof of God. But you aren't going to find in that a God that answers prayers to you which ask for violations of natural law, uh, such as the falling down of the walls of Jericho, you know, or, or being able to walk on water or anything like that. If you're going to worship the enforcement of natural law, you're worshiping something that is eternal and immutable and, and omnipresent. But the and, interesting and thing is... Ultimately a God. A god or gods, the Egyptians viewed it as a multiplicity rather than a singularity, but that's just simply a question of how much you uh, care to treat it as a unity or as a multiplicity. But the interesting thing is, and this sort of gets to your question, you are looking at this from outside of it because you, as a consciousness, can in your consciousness take uh, take views and positions that are in violation of it. You can conceive of different things to do with it that aren't the way that it would normally behave. You can't violate the laws of nature, but you can rearrange them and work with them in ways that they wouldn't by themselves. You can take a tree and chop it up and turn it into a table, okay? If you left the tree by itself, according to natural law, it wouldn't grow into a table, so you are that thing that is external to natural law. You are something that is outside of God. That is the thing that people have been so afraid of over the years, and they call it Satan, and they call it Set, and they try to, once they become aware of it, they're afraid of it. Oh, my God, I'm all by myself, and everything else is external to me, and that's scary, and I'm, I'm a free agent. And that's terrifying. No, I can't be outside of that. I've got to do what I'm told to do. I've got to obey what I'm supposed to obey. So I have to have churches that, that terrify me or thrash me into it. I have to get down on my knees and beat myself up and, and convince myself that I'm a good little part of this universe and a part of this natural law. Well, sorry, you aren't. You're external to it. And the sooner you realize it, the better you are. So there's the thing with being an atheist. I would say, no, <laughs> it's the easiest thing in the world to prove that theism exists, but you have to understand exactly what it is and get rid of all the cartoon notions about it, because we're not talking about a bearded guy, you know, uh, or with a, or, or any other kind of personified god that behaves like a cartoon character. We're talking about the enforcement of all of natural law throughout the entire cosmos, throughout the entire natural universe. 
That is one big gulp, but that's, it's that enforcement, that regularity that is really the thing. It's behind what exists. It keeps it that way. That's right. Now, if I may, um, first of all, I, I, there's no way I can compete with a, a fabulous answer like that. <laughs> um, that was very well put. I, I must admit, it's, um, I, I'd love to talk with you more on that, but obviously pressed for time here. But if I may just say, it, it has always been my belief that we are a, a cosmic uh, biological accident um, within the universe. And sort of maybe to reflect on what Dr. Aquino just said about the universe being part of it all, um, I've always seen that the same to be the same way. Um, you know, when I grew up, I come from an Italian background, and, you know, I was born and raised Roman Catholic and went through the whole thing where I was told that if I didn't do this, uh, you know, I'd go to hell, or if I masturbated, I'd uh, have, I'd go blind and grow hair on my my <laughs> palms. Right. Um, Are you blind? You know, Do you so have hair on your palms? <laughs> almost. <laughs> <laughs> Tell everybody. <laughs> but you know, it, it you know it, it really comes down to trying to be as logical and practical in your understanding of everything as as. Possible as you can possibly be. I, I, I again, I'm very skeptical about things. I always need proof, and uh, you know, I think the reason I went to the left hand path was because when I read when I read the Satanic Bible, uh, I felt it was one of the most in- incredible self help books. It helped me realize to take responsibility for my own actions and realize that it's important that. You know, I am who I am. And then I began to do all the other research about the history of religion and Christianity and understand uh, where it all came from and how it came about and, and different religions as well. And it to me, it, it seems that we have grown as a species. Um, we've come two, three thousand years into a, a modern age where we understand things so much more. We do heart transplants. We change men into women and vice versa. Uh, we do brain surgery. We send rockets to the moon. We, uh, we build aircraft carriers. I mean, these are genius things that the human mind creates. And what does it come down to? Tree of knowledge that was, that was held back from people because when you know things that are logical, there's no more room for blind faith. That's Well, that's very well put. I would, I would add to that that when you are when you talk about things like logic and proof, I would have to say, you know, speaking as a metaphysician, and I'm going to I'm going to hawk another one of my books here. It's called Mindstar because it's a sort of a handbook about the human soul. Good book, by the way. And what people what people mean when they are talking using a term like that. But that that book is talking about that whole point of external perspective that is uniquely creative to each one of us and enables you to go outside of the physical universe, you know, the objective universe. And I bring this up now because when you use a term like proof and logic, these are functions that can be used only within that universe because they are ways of comparing and contrasting that natural law that I was talking about earlier. In other words, you can use some part of natural law to figure out another part of it. What you cannot do is use things like logic uh, and the scientific method to evaluate the human soul and your consciousness because you're outside of that. We're in the realm of creative intuition out here where there are no such laws. You're, you're essentially behaving as a god external to this stuff. And that's what makes it so tricky because you cannot 
do this, you know, in terms of logic anymore. You can't just argue it out and say, well, A plus B equals C, because we're creating our own A's and B's and C's as conscious entities. That's what makes it tricky, and that's what makes it such a challenge to take complete personal responsibility for everything that you are and everything you do, because you cannot hang it on something else. You cannot hang it on an externality. We are in a situation where we are stuck being gods and goddesses, whether we like it or not. And once we realize that and we accept the responsibility for it, then we can start behaving admirably, hopefully, and and not just behaving like jerks. You know, and that's that's kind of what I see it boiling down to. By the way, Paul, are you still on the line? I think I am. Oh, there you are. Oh, that's better. How's it going, guys? You sound much better now. I'm so sorry about that. I like had this other stream going, and so it was this parallel universe of like a few minutes prior, which was like always piping back into my ear. Correct. And I found it very, (laughs) it was very confusing and very discouraging. I apologize for any agitation I might have caused. That's oh, yes. all right, Paul. Did you did you get to hear Dr. Aquino's answer to your question? I did, and I thought it was an awesome, awesome Wasn't it? answer. It, and I was also and and Mike Hideous, I'm also interested in your perspective on that too, because as you've stated, you're very much a left hand path person. And you know, that whole time period when I remember I met you, we like played a show in uh Milwaukee, I think. At, uh, oh my gosh, wow. You know what I'm talking about? It's like a club yes. called like Nocturne, maybe, you know, and there's like people like eight, like Amy Witters and people like that were like hanging around. And then, you know, a little while later, I came out to the East Coast. I don't know, wherever, some, somewhere out there, Philadelphia or Pittsburgh and, and y'all put us up. But that whole time period of the 90s where there was all this direct like communication with people. Um, you know, the whole DIY scene at that time, and I know you know what I'm talking about. There was a left-hand path vibe there that was word of mouth. That was like being spread at the time. And it's like, yes. we would play shows and it's like, we play shows and there'd be, uh, TOS people there. There'd be COS people there. There'd be like, you know, all those Temple of Vampire people were all like creeping around at the time. And there was right. an interesting, it was an interesting time period where there was this exchange. Of like, you know, really left-hand path ideas. I mean, yeah, do you agree with that, you know? Well, um, you know, uh, I'm sorry to say, um, I guess you missed my answer because I was just talking, uh, you know, I gave my, my answer to, to your question, uh, though it wasn't nearly as, as grand as Dr. Aquino's. Uh, I'm, I'm, I don't have the, uh, uh, the knowledge that he does, he, he has much more uh, in-depth, uh, detailed information on such things. I mean, he's just a, you know, that's what he does. But um, as I was saying before, you know, in a nutshell, my belief has always been that, you know, we're, we're a cosmic accident, like a biological accident. Um, so it, it's really difficult to prove anything at this point because we've grown so much as, as a species and we've gotten to the point where uh knowledge is so uh what am i trying to say knowledge is just it's grown so much you know from as i was oh, yeah, saying it's big. yeah and we've done everything from atomic bombs and uh you know rockets to the moon etc cetera, etc cetera. i mean we're on mars now i mean, go figure you know um so atheism is I guess that that was something I started out with, but as I studied more the left-hand path and uh, you know the history of the 60s with the satanic movement, I I became more aware of myself 
And I think that's what every uh, uh, member of the left-hand path will agree about, is that you are your own entity, your own God, per se, uh, for lack of a better term. And you, you, you move forward ahead based on your own actions and take full responsibility for yourself. Uh, so, uh, I mean, that, that's kind of the answer I gave to what your question was after Dr. Aquino. And as far as the other stuff is concerned, I mean, it, we are just living, like what you were just talking about, we're living in different times now. Uh, in, in my personal opinion, the new generation of kids that are coming up, um, everything is Facebook, text messaging, and email. Social values are dying. Um, social skills are dying. Um, like I go to a supermarket, I go to check out and like, like, the, the young kids behind the counter, they don't even look at you. They, they just, it's like, this is the whole new world we live in. So, I don't know, maybe I'm just an old fart and, and, uh, I, I'm set in my ways, but, um, times they are a changing, man. So, this is my question. All three of the mics, are <laughs> we, are we in the last, is America in the last stages of empire? Mm, good question. Yeah. Dr. Aquino. The short answer is yes, and I say this as a political scientist and a political economist and a graduator of that illustrious uh, military-industrial complex shrine, you know, the Industrial College of the Armed Forces, because this is a this is an economic, you know, politics is economics. Uh, the, the movement of, of power, which is measured uh, in terms of assets and money, uh, pretty much determines how how power is and how it's controlled and how it's generated. Uh, you just can't get away from that. And the United States is going to be eclipsed by China in somewhere between 12 and 20 years in terms of being an economic powerhouse. Uh, this, this is, this is not even open to question anymore. It's just a question of, of, of how soon, because it's, it's a fairly routine thing that we're looking at. And even when you go back to things like, um, uh, the big issue about the Trans-Pacific Partnership where the United States was, you know, trying to cobble together a number of countries to kind of be an economic block against China. Everybody here was whooping up, way. We, we got rid of the TPP. Thank goodness we're not going to be enslaved to it. And I was thinking to myself, you know, all you did was speed up China's efforts to do the same thing from their side of the fence. Exactly. And the United States is going to be eclipsed that much sooner. That doesn't mean that we're necessarily going to completely collapse as a country. It just means that we're going to be coming more and more of what you see in Europe today as a sort of one one out of many uh, economic uh, centers around the world rather than a preeminent one. We so came out of World War II as almost the only country on the sword? planet that didn't get blown to bits, and we've been surfing on that ever since, and now the party's over, as, and we're watching it collapse as we go. And... There's just, uh, you know, this is a question. It's, it's not even a debate anymore, but people don't like to confront it. So when you can have Donald Trump saying we're going to make America great again until the cows come home, um, you know, it, it ain't going to happen. You know, we're on a long term decline here. And it's just a question of adapting to being one out of many as opposed to being the only guy at the, at the dinner table and controlling of everything. Absolutely. I mean, are we ultimately going to be absorbed by the European, like globalism? Are we eventually, inevitably going to have to just settle into having one government, like we have no choice? Well, I would say that we're a long, we're pretty much a long way into that already because um, our, our people in Washington are really obeying the, the monetary interests that got them elected and, and control their re-election campaigns and not what uh, what the people of the United States want. 
Uh, look at all the consternation, you know, when, when Trump got elected on the basis of a sort of a populist revolution, which astounded everybody. I mean, they, they were all planning because they had all figured it out that Hillary was going to be the, the follow-up to Obama and a nice little control, control person who did what Wall Street wanted her to do. And instead they got Archie Bunker. And everybody is still running around having hysterics the about this. The you surprise know? of modern times. Everyone yeah. was shocked, Matt. Everyone woke yeah. up the next morning to a different world, a world that no one expected yes, they exactly. would ever live in. So, so we're watching a sort of a, a bizarre, yeah, we're watching a sort of a bizarre after morning party where everybody's running around yelling. Uh, and, and Trump is on one hand, you know, he's a member of the money elite, but on the other hand, he doesn't seem to, to take himself too seriously as a part of it. He doesn't feel like kissing Wall Street's ass. He just likes to kiss his own ass, you know. Right. So this is kind of, <laughs> this is the, kind of Trump, interesting Trump to watch. The, yeah. Trump is chaos candidate. That's the irony of it. He's the chaos yeah. candidate. Yeah. No one knows what he's yes. going to do. He comes from chaos. Right. He's not from their, their world, you know. And it's like mm-hmm. now he's there. And the irony is all of the people who are into chaos, like religiously, um, don't like this at all. They're very much, no, 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 that's a bad thing. We don't want chaos. And, you know, they're, they're actually, they want that nice, that, that very reliable, like socialist globalist regime. They like the comfort of that. You know, they're, they're, they're not sure. comfortable with this guy. Yeah. I'm not, there are things that I don't like about Donald Trump that I wish I could change a bit, uh, particularly since he's, in control of nuclear weapons and things like this, I'm not really sure that he fully understands how hideously dangerous these things are. So when I see him playing who's got the bigger penis, you know, with that other idiot, you know, <laughs> in North Korea, I, 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 I'm not too thrilled about that. And I would love to have Donald Trump to myself for a couple of days where I could sit him down and show him some very graphic, uh, visuals about what nuclear weapons are all about. So that he calms down in that area and doesn't, you know, waggle these things around. But, uh, but other than that, I, I sort of like his freshness. I mean, he's a kind of a, 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 an old style political American politician, which I, I, I sort of like that. I mean, it's the, the better part of our history. It's, it's Davy Crockett and stuff, you know. Yeah. Wow. I, I gotta, I gotta throw this into the mix though. Um, what about this maniac in, in North Korea? I mean, he's pretty much threatening everybody. Right. And, and, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because I did want to ask all of you about that. The whole North Korean conflict with Kim Jong-un or Kim Jong-un. Kim, Kim Jong-fat. That's what. Right. Right. Well, it seems like tensions are, are escalating, not only with North Korea, but with everyone out there. And I, I'm a little, I'm a little nervous to be honest with you. But, but Michael. Well, for one thing, Kim, Kim Jong, Kim, Kim Jong Un is, is not the actor that you, that he seems to be. He's just a, he's a little bit like this parrot that keeps yakking in the background every <laughs> once in a while here during this show. He's a, he's a figurehead. And so was his, so was his father a figurehead. There's a, there's a small group, uh, a directorate behind him, uh, which is very well known to us in the intelligence community that call the shots. And these are a small number of, of elites in North Korea that are very old and very sensible and uh, very calculating. And these are the people that are, are determining things. Uh, Kim, uh, Kim Jong, Kim Jong, uh, Un is, uh, is just a playboy kid who's shooting off his mouth whenever they tell him to shoot off his mouth. And he's, he's handy for them to use as a propaganda vehicle against Trump. Uh, you know, because it's, uh, it makes, it makes it into a sort of a comic opera between the two of them. 
but the people who are controlling him aren't going to make the kind of mistake that, that, as I said, that Trump could possibly make on our side because we have all of these, you know, nuclear weapons and things consolidated in the presidency where the president can pretty much make up his mind on his own, which makes me a little glad that we've got him surrounded at least by a few four-star generals who, who know about this shit and are not likely oh. to, you know, allow the, the finger to push the button. Absolutely. But I don't think we have to worry about that from the North Korean side because the people who are actually making the decisions from behind Kim Jong-un over there are not stupid and they're not going to do it. I don't underestimate I, our our um, our anti-ballistic missile capabilities. I'm pretty sure we are probably well than safe. It's just a little, it's just a little unusual to see all this going down in 2017. Wild times, I'd say. Absolutely. I, I, nuclear nuclear weapons are a lot worse and a lot more dangerous. I, I hate to keep everybody up tonight. But, you know, the, we are on a hair trigger internationally about this stuff ever since the end of the Cold War, because if the USSR had nothing else, it had a very strong and very tight control over all of its nuclear weapons. And the Russian Federation today sort of does that, but it is a lot more precarious than it used to be. It's a lot sloppier country than it used to be. And we have a lot of people in political situations like now, like, like Trump, you know, and like Obama, who are not military people and don't appreciate how dangerous these things are and talk about things like usable nuclear weapons and battlefield nuclear weapons as though they are just some something else on a chessboard. And they are absolutely not. I have spent a lot of time, um, you know, when I was at Space Command during 1990-1994, and I was traveling back and forth between NORAD and Cheyenne Mountain in Colorado and Area 51 and the National Training Center or National Testing Center in Nevada, uh, which is right next to Area 51, and I was standing in craters where we tested H-bombs that you could put a whole goddamn city in. Right. All right? Right. Wow. So so I, I want to take Donald Trump out there to the National Testing Center, and I want to, if you, you know, Google, go to Google Earth and look up Sedan Crater, S-E-D-A-N, and look at that, and you could drive a bus into the bottom of that thing, and it would, and you are looking at a one big, one big crater that you could put a whole city in. And when you're standing in the middle of that, then you start to realize how dangerous these things are. Go on YouTube and look up the Tassar Bomba, T-S-A-R-B-O-M-B-A. There's a, a very good clip on it on YouTube, several clips on it. This is a 50 megaton hydrogen bomb that the Russians set off when they were playing games with this stuff. And if that doesn't keep you awake at night, you know, nothing will. Uh, and uh, this is find... the stuff that we just cannot cannot screw around with any longer. I agree. Now you can find you can find like images now online of like people like being destroyed in in, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and that incredible devastation power has been there, and that is in human hands. But here's the thing about North Korea is that those people like aren't going to invade anyone. They have no aspirations of invading anyone. They're an incredibly poor country. There's this book out now by this guy, Michael Malice, called Dear Reader, the unauthorized biography of Kim Jong-il. And, and, and he went to like North Korea undercover. A lot of people have been doing that nowadays uh, to see what's going on there. And it's horrible. It's horrific. It's so sad that people live under that. It's like the ultimate 1984 government actually like lived out 
it, it by by to a T. You know, they have work camps and death camps and everything. And, but you know what? They are not going to invade anyone because they don't have the 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 a power to do it at all. All they they invest all of their money in sh- firing off these missiles only to try and tell the West to stay away from them. Because you know what America has been doing for like years, and this is, Dr. Aquino was talking about this earlier, this is how America asserts itself. We've got our ships over there, like right off of their coastline, going back and forth, you know, right right outside of their waters, flying missions over there, their air, tor- ter- air territory, fucking with them, like trying to provoke them. And so they always come out and they make a big show like firing off missiles saying, hey, don't fuck with us because we're not going to fuck around if you do. And so what are we doing? We're like, oh, no, now now this is all like going into the media, getting everyone all, all excited. Oh, yeah, yeah, we got to go fuck North Korea now. And yeah. there we go. We'll be in, in war in yet another front. I'm sorry. We've already been at war for like 16 Six, years. 16 years we've been right. in Iraq. What the hell right. are we doing? And Nothing. history is repeating itself if you Absolutely. haven't been paying attention and – uh, Mr. Aquino, I think you would agree with me where it seems like we hit some sort of uh, time warp. Well, the, uh, the, you know, the point is well taken that North Korea is very paranoid concerning the United States because it's looked at a lot of countries like Libya and Afghanistan and Iraq where one day we were friendly with the people there. And then when they crossed us or they became inconvenient, we did this thing called regime change, which is to invade them and put in a puppet government. And North Korea after having been called part of the axis of evil, you know, with uh, Iran, is very much afraid that uh, if the United States needs another war to prop up, to 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 re- rearrange domestic priorities to something else internationally, that we would spark up a war, you know, over there. Now, North Korea could, and, and that's why they want nuclear weapons in a nutshell, because they are they have convinced themselves that if they have nuclear weapons, then the United States won't risk invading them. And that's why they are not going to bargain them away, no matter how many speeches are made in the United Nations or how many sanctions are applied. They're simply going to keep going until they've got them. But I don't think that they, I, I agree with your other caller there, that they, they, they are not looking to invade anybody else. They're just very paranoid about being invaded. And they would very definitely, I would say the best thing to do with them right now would be to stop all the war games on their borders that are, that are, uh, uh, play acting invading them <laughs> and also get into some serious discussions with them about a peace treaty because we're technically at war with Korea. We have been since the 1950s. We have right. an armistice there, but we don't have a peace treaty. And I think if we sat down with South Korea and, uh, and negotiated a peace treaty, which, um, recognized North Korea's right to exist and sort of said, no, nobody's invading anybody else. I don't know that that would make them dump all their nuclear weapons in the uh, in the ocean immediately, but it would make things a lot less dangerous and make them that much less paranoid. So I would go well, in that direction. I'm not even Dr. sure if they're going to stop, however. I, it just seems like they're going to continue with, with the propaganda videos that they've been releasing constantly still to this day. It, it, no, they, it, that's, if I may just cut it up for a second. That's just propaganda. Correct. Yeah. Go ahead, Mike. If, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I just had to say this. With all the news that I've heard about uh, North Korea, uh, uh, it, it seems that they don't want to bow down to anyone, and they continually uh, break their quote-unquote promises when they negotiate, per se, uh, and they do what they want anyway. So how would there even be a negotiation with a country that is 
so paranoid. That, that, and as uh, Dr. Kuno said before, they're, they're, these people are starving. The, 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 you know, the only people that are not probably starving are the ones in the military. And I don't know, it's just very frightening to, to think about what is happening to this world right now. And, and not for nothing, but look what we had for the last eight years. We had this, this wimp as a president who bowed down to everybody and made us look like, you know, he went on the apology tour and told everybody, oh, well, we're sorry we did this. We're, you know what? That was then. This is now. Maybe it's about time, you know, we put some, our foot down, which is why I also like Trump. The guy puts his foot down and says, we've got to make things better. For the last 16 years plus, with Bush in office, with Hussein in office, and even with Clinton in office, nobody did anything about North Korea. Nothing. Now they might have a bomb. They might direct it right at us. Well, I would have to say, too, that the, I mean, in all fairness, you know, the United States is, has a pretty good record of breaking its word uh, uh, to other countries, too, over the years. So we haven't exactly been the, the shining star of, of virginity here, you know, which is why I refer to this as, as, a, as a penis contest, you know, between as who's got the bigger one, you know, between Trump and the guy over there. And, and I really, and I really think that we can afford to, to go in the direction of things like talks towards a peace treaty that will at least help, you know, lower the bar a little bit and don't, don't amount to us selling anybody out or anything. Uh, but just simply try to stabilize the border there that much more so that these people don't feel so, so completely paranoid that, uh, that they're going to be the subject of a, of the next opportunistic invasion. That's all. And nobody's, and here's, nobody's arguing here's, that they've got a really wonderful government over there. It's a, it's a pretty miserable place. There's no reason to, to do what we can to make them more miserable by, by applying more sanctions and make them more frightened and more paranoid. We should be doing just the opposite and trying to calm things down, um, make them feel a little bit more relaxed. Uh, that's the direction in which I would, I would try to nudge things. As I said, I'm speaking as a guy who wrote that book, Mind War, which is looking for ways to stabilize things internationally without shooting people and blowing them up. And I always am looking in the direction of trying to solve the problem um, by getting everybody sitting down at the table together and working it out rather than penis contest. Well, here's here's why you can't take, here's the problem with taking North Korea. We tried that in the 50s. We couldn't do it. You know why? It's a mountain region. Same reason we couldn't take Afghanistan. Afghanistan. Same reason the Russians take Afghanistan. Same reason Hannibal couldn't take Afghanistan. It's a mountainous <laughs> region. You're right. What are you going to do? I mean, all <laughs> we're going to do, like with like North Korea, I mean, what are we going to do? Drop a fucking nuke or whatever, you know, or firebomb them? They're just going to hide in the mountain and then come back out. We, you know? Well, we don't and, need to invade the place. We don't need to go into their mountains. All we have to do is say we recognize your border. We're not going to cross it, so calm down. And right. we haven't They're done mountain that. People. There's also a huge sure. history of like mountain people, like people who come from mountainous regions have a tendency to be cut off from like other people and just sort of like, hey, we're just going to like leave us alone. We just want to stay on our mountains. OK, I mean, if you're an American, <laughs> sure. and, and come on, like my hideous, I know you're like not too far from the Appalachian Mountains from that part of the south. Right. You know what I'm saying? It's like there's a whole culture there. It's like we're mountainous people. Don't fuck with us. And the rest Actually, of the world just needs to understand they're mountain people. Don't fuck with them. Uh, that, that's true. But And, and just for a, a little correction there, I'm actually in the Poconos in Pennsylvania now. Oh, okay. Got 
Yes, smaller mountains. Right. You're not, you're not hanging out with the blue people like in the hills of like Kentucky, right? <laughs> no, no albinos, no, nothing like that. No, uh, no, uh, <laughs> and, uh, you referenced Afghanistan and yet again, uh, history is repeating itself. We are back in Afghanistan once again. What a what waste. A what a waste. That was Obama's war. I mean, come on. We all have to understand Obama. That was Obama. That's now Obama's war. He inherited it. He it's just, it. it seems like such a waste. Not a, if you think about all the human life that we wasted in Iraq, in uh, Afghanistan, uh, and wherever, wherever else we've been fighting out in the Middle East, I, it seems like such a waste that people have died, um, for nothing. Trillions of that's dollars. That's why I wrote, that's why I wrote that book called Mind War, which is because I got so pissed at this stuff. And I said, you know, we're, like somebody said earlier in this discussion this evening, we're so smart we can send people to the moon, but we keep bashing ourselves on the head with clubs here on this planet. And we should be smart enough to figure out ways to solve problems here without that. And so if nobody else is going to come up with a plan for it, I'm going to. And that's why I wrote the book. But Dr. Aquino, with all due respect, sir, you have a a religion like Islam who is absolutely (laughs) infatuated with death. Uh, they want death more than they want life, and that's what they teach their children, and that's what they teach in their, their Quran, in their holy book, in, in their mosques. How can we possibly deal with, with, with a, a culture of people who just absolutely, it, it, do you know, do you know that there's a word in the Quran, uh, oh crap, what's it called? Uh, uh, oh damn it. Uh, no, 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 no. There's a word that, and I can't remember what the hell it is. I, I've said it a thousand times, and now I, I'm, I'm blank. It's, it, yes, yes, fatwa. No, 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 no. It, it's no, no, no. Wait, don't. Conf- it's something to do. It allows you, if you are a Muslim, it allows you to lie to anyone to further the ideology of the Islamic religion. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Because people, people who are not in, not part of the religion are like not human. I mean, they're like, right. like slaves. You can kill them, whatever. They right. have no right to life at all. And 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 this is what I'm getting at. How can you trust a people who live by a, a book with his, which their Quran is like our constitution? Uh, their mosque is like our White House. Their politics and religion are one. Okay, right. we don't we don't have that here in America. Uh, we they didn't separate- go through an enlightenment. They didn't. Go through an understanding that like no, they're still living in, in, in they're still living in this in the seventh century, and yeah. as what I'm trying to get to it would again, Doctor Kuna, <laughs> how can you how can you possibly communicate with 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 a, a culture of people? Uh, there we go, Takia. Thank you, darling. I love you. Uh, it's called <laughs> it, yeah, my 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 girlfriend just texted. It's El Takia, right? Takia. No, it's L- T A. Hold on, it's T A. Q yes uh-huh I Y Y A Takia Yeah I've heard that before Takia Right I've heard that as Al Takia before Right Okay here's here's my short here's my short answer to that and that is that Judeo Christianity uh has exactly as bloody a bunch of excuses on its side and it has for centuries and it's exterminated entire populations uh, around the world on the basis of Judeo Christianity and all it, uh, if, if you look back on it, I mean, we, they, it started slugging it out with the uh, Muslims back at the time of the Crusades, and then it got bored with that and just began persecuting uh, Catholics versus Protestants and burning them at the stake and torturing them to death. And then it went over to the 
Western Hemisphere and exterminated the populations over here or enslaved them. And today, and then today, it pretty much forgot about uh, worrying about the Muslims until the fall of communism, uh, which was the big, you know, remember all that stuff about atheistic communism and godless communism? And that was the big, that was the big bugbear, you know, around the world. And then when it vanished, there was a big scramble to find somebody else to hate. You needed another scarecrow. And lo and behold, up came Islamic fundamentalism, which nobody had given rat's ass for. If you go back before 1989, you won't find shit about this. Nobody cared. You could have Muslim neighbors. You know, the Boy Scouts had a Muslim, um, you know, religion badge and things like this. Nobody gave a damn about it. And, and Muslims were just people who worshiped God under a slightly different name. Suddenly, everybody's terrified. You know, there's this big word, terrorism. Oh, my God. You know, well, look, you can, if you... If you beat on a people long enough because of their religion, then the ones who get nastiest about it are going to hate you. And yes, they're going to come back and go after you. And then, oh, look at we've got all these nasty Muslims who hate us. No shit. You've been bombing them for years. You know, you back then you the you know, Clinton was bombing the uh Iraq, you know, for years and years and years and killing thousands and thousands of children and stuff there and and Madeleine Albright was saying, "Yeah, so what?" you know. And, uh, and yeah, you know, if they're pissed off today, it's not a surprise. But the religion itself, you can, you can interpret Islam just like you can Christianity. You can find good and bad ways to interpret it. Either way, I, you know, as I said a little earlier, religion, a lot of people make religion an excuse for their personal responsibility and their personal behavior. And they say, well, you know, the Bible says this. The Bible says thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Uh, so it's okay if we burn them at the stake. Um, the Bible says, you know, Jesus Christ said, I came not to being peace, but a sword. So it's okay if we go and butcher people. And you can find stuff in the Quran that says, let's go kick the ass of non-believers. The Jews um, have one standard of respect for Jews and another for Gentiles, you know, which is sort of slightly above animals that you should be kind to them, but you don't have to treat them the same way you do Jews. And as a result, a lot of Christians came to resent Jews, you know, over the years. And it's all the same to you, you know. So you can find all this stuff. The Quran, the and I, I would say today more, that I would say you today know. that you do not have to you don't have to go around slaughtering Muslims. Um you just treat them address them as people and not as, as stereotypes and you'd be surprised how many how, how much decency there is there. The the religion, I've read the Quran and I've read a lot of their works. There's a lot of, of beauty and a lot of sympathy for other people in there. It's just what you choose to focus on. But if you're gonna go beating up other people and bombing them and blowing them up and destroying their families and starving them to death, then, yeah, they're going to get pissed off at you, and they're going to treat you the same way. So we've got to, you know, dial this crap down, and and right. that includes the stereotypes on both sides. True, very true. Absolutely. And I mean, you go over and bomb people in another country, then, you know, they're going to have they don't a bad like it. impression of you, for sure. They don't like it. Yes, I don't think anybody's going to like that, for sure. And uh, you the United know, States, the mm-hmm. United States doesn't have the experience of being blown up and bombed, really, since the Civil War. And uh, I mean, nobody's invaded this country, you know, since the Civil War when we fought everything out. And you know, unlike the recent issues about that, we didn't fight the Civil War for slavery. We fought it to preserve centralized domination over states that wanted the to Union. Succeed. Oh no, no, the the, the it was the, three the years after the Civil War before we got around to passing like the Fourteenth Amendment. The Civil War started in 1861. Is when the war when when secession started when the when the South seceded 1861. 
Emancipation Proclamation was 1863, you know. And the Emancipation Proclamation only applied to the uh, to slavery in the states that had seceded. There were four Union states, Missouri, Kentucky, uh, Delaware, and Maryland, that were slave states, and they were in the Union, and they were not – they were exempted by the Emancipation Proclamation because Lincoln didn't want to lose them or piss them off. They could still have slaves today. People don't know that. Huh? Yeah. No, yeah. I knew well, I'm just saying that this is, yeah, okay. So that's, as I said, and after the war was over, they didn't get around to passing the 14th Amendment and abolishing slavery until 1868, three years later. Right. Uh, it, you know, but, but getting back to the whole, the whole thing with the, the, the Muslim religion, you know, yeah. I can respect what you're saying. I, I guess, I guess what it really comes down to is government really is fucked up. And, and, um, I mean, and then I'm not talking about yeah. just America. I'm talking about, in my personal opinion, I think all governments are really, they're, they're not always in the best interest of the people. Um, but what the hell do I know? I'm just a retired musician. <laughs> so, you know, I'll tell you what, I, to, to okay. tie all this in, and I, I, I kind of tend towards like total like, uh, well, I'm kind of libertarian, but on, on like a rough day, I'm pretty much a total anarcho-capitalist thing. And I feel the ultimate like vision of like what society could be was actually illustrated in one of Dr. Aquino's uh, books, The Diabolicon, where he talks about how the daemons, after they rebel in heaven and go across the abyss and build a new place, and they call it pandemonium, where all people are individuals and free and take on their own shapes, and there's never any any strife between them sort of thing. And I think that's actually, I take that as an ultimate vision of where humanity can go. I think that we're destined to evolve beyond the need for government, right? I wrote, uh, I wrote the Diabolican we... back in 1970, and it was a, a a variation on Paradise Lost by John Milton, which I admired a good deal. But if you if you would like to see a sort of a a science fictionalized model of uh, how a society could uh, be organized on a mass scale, you might take a look at my uh, my takeoff on Star Wars, which is called Fire Force, in which I took a lot of the um, a lot it's of the stresses ass. and the international systems that were underway, you know, that were sort of simplified in that original movie and extrapolated them into a very large novel that took me decades to really complete, which is still available. It's called Fire Force, and uh, uh, many people don't know, for example, that the original Star Wars movie was actually an outer space takeoff on the Vietnam War. Right. Yeah, I had yes. It was originally. No, you guys. Yeah, it was you originally guys an idea. That. All the times that I've <laughs> talked to you in the last few years about Star Wars, in my mind, uh-huh. I had Doctor Aquino's version of Star Wars actually moving through my head at that time. I had no idea. Well, originally, right. originally Francis Ford Coppola uh, was going to do a an anti-war movie on Vietnam about the uh, the oppressive rebels and the and the overbearing empire. And he got distracted by the by his Godfather movies, which were right smack in the middle of him right now. So he took one of his protégés, George Lucas, and said, you can have the idea for this and go with it and work it up into an anti-Vietnam War movie. And George Lucas began to work on it. And uh, then Coppola decided that he wanted it back, so he took it back and he made it into what we know as Apocalypse Now. And George Lucas uh, had done a lot of work on this idea of an evil empire and a bunch of um, rebel rebels who were fighting against it. So he said, well, okay, you can have the Vietnam War back 
but I'll just take the same thing and move it to outer space. And that was how Star Wars came to be created. And you can see the ghost of this in Apocalypse Now, where there's a scene with Harrison Ford as a colonel with the name of Lucas. <laughs> oh, my God. That's so, right. A, yes. A lot of little history, you know, here and there. But that's, that's wow. the true way of how Star Wars came to exist in the first place. And what I did was to take the whole original setup in that first movie and extrapolate it into a psycho-political and uh, military exercise in logic and reason as to how societies could be constructed. And that's how that that huge novel came to be came together on itself. Yes, and Paul, Again, it's called Fire Force. And yeah. Paul, I do want to thank you for uh, joining us here in this uh, in this discussion. Excuse me. Um, I'm going to cut Paul. I'm going to cut you loose now, Paul. I, uh, once again, thanks for joining us here. Thanks. Thank you, All right, Paul. y'all. Take care, Paul. Okay. And that was a caller there, a new caller, a great caller who uh, added a lot to the conversation. So I do appreciate that. And Michael, uh, we are coming towards the end of these of of this great interview uh by the way and i do want to talk to you about extraterrestrial life i don't think we've ever really got gotten too far into that anytime i've spoken to you in the past okay but first i have to is the parrot still here the parrot's there <laughs> yes he's right next to me <laughs> he's still here okay well first first i'm going to i'm going to tell a parrot joke the only parrot joke i know <laughs> which has to do it's this is, Love this it. is a, a woman who's a woman who's passing a pet store and there's a parrot for sale in the window at a very cheap price. She goes in and asks the proprietor, you know, why is the parrot so so low priced? And he says, well, the police raided a, a bordello here in the neighborhood yesterday, and the parrot was the house pet. And uh, they brought him over here because they didn't know what to do with him. Uh, but he has all this salty language, you know, so we, we can't sell him for a high price. So the woman goes over to the pet parrot and looks at him, and the parrot looks at her and says, new madam. So she thinks this is kind of cute. So she takes, she says, I'll buy him. So she buys the parrot, takes it home, walks in the front door, and her teenage daughter is in the living room, and the parrot looks at her and says, ah, new girl. And they're chuckling over this, and then her, her husband comes into the room, and the parrot looks at him, ah, hi, Jack. Ah, nice. <laughs> I like that. That's uh, good. I don't think Captain really got the joke, but uh, I did. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I love that. So, Thank you, Doctor. Doctor. All right. I, I understand that you were, of course, a space intelligence officer. Uh, let's start yeah. there. Okay. I was one of the Army's first space intelligence officers because they developed their space intelligence program at around 1990, and they were looking for uh, strategic intelligence officers to go into it. And I was looking for uh, some new adventures, and I said, okay, I'd like to uh, go into space. So. I uh, went to the Army's uh, Space Institute and uh, became a 3Y skilled uh, officer, which is their space activities uh, designator. They didn't even, it was so new that the Institute didn't even have its own classes. They actually punted me to the Air Force, which had a joint space intelligence course that they ran in uh, Colorado Springs um, at Peterson Air Force Base. And uh, that's how I became qualified as a joint space intelligence officer. And after that, I was assigned to uh, J2X at uh, Headquarters U.S. Space Command at uh, Peterson Air Force Base, which is the major headquarters that uh, has sub-headquarters for NORAD, the North American Air Defense Command with Canada, and, of course, the uh, command center there at uh, Cheyenne Mountain. So I worked there from 1990 to 1994 as uh, a J2X officer, 
and uh, that was just uh, prior to my retirement from active duty. I thought that was a kind of a good way to finish things off. <clears throat> Excellent. So your your so your question is okay. Are there UFOs? Correct. You know, for a start. Okay, I got a simple answer. There sure are, and I can say this uh, for a very simple reason that out there at Cheyenne Mountain, you know, our job was to look at absolutely everything up there in uh, in space. NORAD, of course, came into existence to originally look for ICBMs that might be coming over the North Pole towards Canada and the United States from the Soviet Union, but its mission got bigger and bigger until it was required to actually look at everything up there. And if you think about it, there's an awful lot of crap up there in space. And some of it comes from Earth in the form of space junk from all the scores and scores and scores of launches and discarded pieces of metal, you know, over the years that's up there in orbit. Oh, yes. And is deteriorating all the time. And and there's also all kinds of crap that's passing Earth from otherwheres, you know, from out there in space. It's zipping by the planet, and some of it gets into the atmosphere, and the stuff that's in the atmosphere will either bounce off or burn up. Uh, or if it's big enough, it'll land as a meteor somewhere. But uh, to make a long story short, there's an enormous amount of this. If you'll Google something like space junk on the Internet, you'll get a rough idea of what a huge amount of garbage there is out there. And we simply cannot track or identify it all. It was coming into our screens all the time. And if somebody pointed at a blip that was going through at a high rate of speed and said, okay, what's that? I haven't had the foggiest idea, General. Yeah. You know, in another yes. 30 seconds, it'll be gone. So the mission of Space Command with regard to UFOs, you know, for you, for you UFO buffs, was really quite simple. We ignored that crap unless there was some reason to think that it posed a danger to the United States. So if you saw something that was big enough and, re and entering down here and looked like it was, you know, headed for a big city or Washington, then you would pay a lot of attention to it in a hurry. Right, right. But other than that, we just screw it, you know. I mean... There's all this stuff going on out there. It's like watch. It's it's like trying to watch the LA freeways. You know, good luck. Wow. And uh, and that's kind of the attitude that we have. So yes, there was an enormous amount of UFO activity down there, up there rather. And uh, some of it could be accidental. Some of it could be uh, deliberate. Some of it behaves very coherently. But even that is a kind of a hard judgment call to make because you think you're seeing something on a radar screen that looks as though it's intelligent activity and it may not necessarily be that at all. So um, while I was there in 1990 to 1994, we did not have any invasions. Is what I understood, yes. You know, we didn't have anybody that we had to scramble the jets and go up and try and shoot it down. But <laughs> That's a good as thing. far as UFO activity, sure, lots of it. So you don't, believe, we're, those you don't believe we are alone in the universe then? Well, I think that statistically it would be crazy to say that. And to, and to, and, you know, Carl Sagan would agree with me, I'm sure. And if you look up there and you, and you statistically look at the size of the physical universe, you know, that objective universe that I was ranting about earlier, it's pretty damn big. Oh, yes. And the odds, the odds that we are the only planet in all of that that has, that's developed, you know, uh, functioning, functioning life forms is, is almost ridiculously, you know, ridiculous to imagine. Statistically, there's plenty of, of other stuff there that is metabolizing into independently functioning uh, what, used to, what, what I think V'ger called carbon units, you know, on Star Trek. So I would say that, yes, there are plenty of other life forms out there. The big question is really how, you know, how realistic is it to say that we could actually communicate with 
or interact with people from those kinds of distances. And remember that the distance between us and Alpha Centauri, um, the closest, uh, you know, other star system around. Correct, right. It's huge. Yes. It's huge. Mm-hmm. Now, people, a lot of people think that the speed of light is a, is a restriction. Well, it isn't at all. I mean, that's a misunderstanding of how relativity functions. And anybody in space intelligence, as I said, is well aware of this. Um, if you're at 186,000 miles per second and you step on the gas, you've just gone faster than the speed of light and it's no big deal. But you have to understand that the way relativity works is it's a measurement of the differential between two objects in the physical universe. So if you measure uh, 186,000 miles per second, that's you and your spaceship versus the planet Earth. But it does not necessarily have anything to do with that spaceship versus Mars or Venus or the sun or anything else. So you're measuring a differential. You're not measuring an absolute. And that's where people get Einstein all screwed up. So physically, you can go fast. You can you can go plenty fast enough to get from here to there in real time. The problem is that what you start to do is you escape the electromagnetic spectrum, which is your way of measuring between these objects, because that the electromagnetic spectrum does function in terms of these same um, wavelengths. And that's how we, that's how we measure where we are. And as you, you, you sort of over, overrun your, your compass. <laughs> you overrun your radio waves. Right, right. You don't know where the hell you are because everything becomes a blur. So when you, when you go faster than the speed of light relative to where you're going or where you're coming from, you escape all of, all of your instruments and you had better make a pretty fine estimate of where you're going to wind up. Uh, because not until <laughs> right. you get there and you slow down, are you going to be able to take measurements again? Now, I'm not saying that that's impossible, theoretically, but that's that's a big task when you're talking about these kinds of distances. That's Absolutely. like, you know, taking a slingshot from um, uh, from Alpha Centauri and saying, okay, if we go this, this, this direction in exactly this azimuth and calculating everything else, we'll wind up at Earth, you know, when we hit the brakes. Well, that, that's an amazing amount of precision. So I'm not saying it can't theoretically happen, but it would have right. to be awfully, awfully advanced to do that. And I'm, I'm not really aware of, of any kind of even theoretical technology that would enable somebody to do that because you're outrunning all of the, the construction things, you know, that make up the physical universe. You're just, you're outrunning all of your points of reference. And that's a big bite yeah. there, you know. It, it's too, now, right. as far as the fuel goes, yeah. Fuel isn't the problem, okay? Because if you look up zero point energy, uh, which is one of these neat little things that's been developed fairly recently, discovered fairly recently, you can find that you can gobble all the energy that you need to, to power your spaceship from here and there. The problem is navigation and communication systems. That's uh, the, that's you, the, that's the problem. I'm glad you mentioned that, uh, because I had spoken to a gentleman by the name of David Sarita who talks a lot about Egypt and it, uh, the pyramids. And he talks about mm-hmm. how they're these giant oscillators. And he kind of goes on to speculate that these were basically used to harness lots of energy for, well, who knows, maybe a spaceship perhaps. Uh, that's kind of where he goes off into his own uh, tangent there. But it is interesting, however, that there there are lots of different frequencies that surround a, a lot of these great architectural monuments, these megaliths, rather. And as you know, Mr. Uh, Dr. Aquino, rather, you, you know far well about uh, what great builders the, the Egyptians were, the sacred geometry they knew. 
Yeah, I'm not satisfied that the pyramids were built by the Egyptians. I think that those three on the Giza plateau go up, go back pretty much, go back rather much farther. Yeah. And the Egyptians certainly had the skills with their level of competence to do all the copies because all the other pyramids around Egypt are much lower quality copies of the ones on Giza. Correct. The Giza ones are so precise and so massive that even, even today we couldn't reconstruct those things with the precision that they're built on. And and everybody who spent any time in Egypt at all knows that the Egyptians were crazy for decorating stuff. You know, they didn't build they didn't build temples that were bare and that were just sand colored. They they painted everything. You know, they they put statues all over the place and bas reliefs all over the place. And they never left. They they never saw a bare wall that they liked. And the pyramids are, you know, the Great Pyramid is completely bare and completely barren. And all of the passages in it make no sense whatever for human beings. Correct. So when I when I looked at them, I said to myself, um, okay, people who say that these things are batteries haven't shown me a place where I can plug anything in and get any energy out of it. <laughs> right. But what I see in them what I see in them is more akin to a Faraday cage. In other words, a a large device that actually blocks off exterior energy. And that raises very interesting uh implications concerning that that uh, human soul that I was talking at earlier because it's it's you might look at it as a kind of a variation on what John Lilly was doing in the 1960s when he was coming up with ways to get at the essence of the human soul and the human personality by by constructing um sensory deprivation tanks yeah with dolphins and LSD yeah Good so times. you can uh, so you can you can look at the you can look at the pyramid, the Great Pyramid, as something very much to a Faraday cage that takes anything inside it and pretty much insulates it almost completely from external influences, uh, vibrations, waves, um, and forces in the electromagnetic spectrum. Correct. I mean, you're in a you're in a dead zone, uh, literally inside that thing, and and that fascinates me. And I'm not exactly sure where where that that uh, takes us because. When you, when you remove all external influences from the human consciousness, you can come up with some pretty crazy stuff, including some very bad stuff. You're getting into areas. Anybody here, your audience, seen the movie Forbidden Planet? Oh, yes. I'm, I'm sure plenty of okay. people have. You remember, you, mm-hmm. Okay. You remember the id monster? Yes. That's what happens when you expand the human consciousness to extremely high levels, but you don't know what you're doing. So you expand the, the unknown and dangerous parts of it at the same time. And then you create a very destructive force that's very primitive and very irrational and very violent. So yeah. I tend to look at the uh, pyramids a little bit more cautiously in that way. And I'm not exactly sure that, that they were built for beneficial reasons that way. Understood. And don't you ever wish you could have seen Egypt in its prime? Well, sure. Uh, you know, Egypt left a lot of records concerning itself. I know about a lot about the civilization from reading it. Spent a lot of years, you know, of course, researching uh, the records that have survived in Egyptology. But as again, as I said, I'm not entirely. I wouldn't tend to cast my lot in the direction of saying that the Giza pyramids date to Egypt. I think they go back much further yeah, because I don't think that the fourth right. dynasty Egyptians had that kind of skill to produce those things. Because we know what they did. In pyramid building, because of all the copies, there are about 30 or 35 pyramids, you know, scattered around Egypt. That shows you what the Egyptians knew about pyramid building, and it isn't even close to those three Giza things. By the way, did you ever watch the film Stargate? Sure. 
uh, and and the and the series. And uh, I've heard, interestingly enough, I've actually heard a few people joke that um, because of the dialogue and the correspondence that was going on between Paul Kantner and myself during the time when I was a space intelligence officer at Space Command, that the two uh, two characters on it, um, Colonel O'Neill and uh, Doctor Jackson, were inspired or caricatures based on Paul Cantor and myself. I can't tell you I've got anything hard to back that up on. I just uh, heard a yes. lot of people from Hollywood saying, uh, guess what? You know, you guys were a sort of a, uh, a model for what ultimately became the movie and later on the series. Because when I was at, uh, at Space Command, you know, Paul Cantor and I were regularly conversing back and forth on all this stuff and on all the implications of this kind of thing. And you know, uh, with all this talk about movies and, uh, isolation tanks, um, I'm sorry, deprivation tanks, um, did you ever see the movie Altered States back in the 80s? Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's based on, mm-hmm. based on John Lilly. Yes. Based on John Lilly's work. Of course, it was a, originally a novel and a very magnificent novel. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and I encourage anybody to, who hasn't seen it to watch the movie and also to read the novel. Uh, very, very elegant piece of work, really. Absolutely. Love that film. Yes. And you also reminded me of another movie um, when you brought up Carl Sagan. And that, of course, is the movie Contact, which um, I'm not, oh, a, yeah. not a really too big of a fan on, on the film. However, the book w- was solid. I'm, I'm not familiar with that, but uh, OK. Well, the I'll book was far. great. The, the book, the the book, book was, was fantastic. Right. Uh, the film, I guess the film, you know, sometimes films lose the oh, imagination yeah. of the book. You know, the, the book gives you the opportunity to use your brain and imagine what you feel would be, you know, the ideal situation uh, scene. Uh, you know, once they create the film itself and they create the imagery that you see in the film, it's not always what you agree with or want to see. Um, but yes, once again, a, another great movie about, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the possibility of there being uh, life out there. And I'll tell you, I, you know, what Dr. Aquino was saying before about, yeah, there's plenty of UFOs in the, in the sky. Yeah, we know all about that. There's tons and tons of space junk out there from all the, the launches and, and how we keep track of them is, uh, is quite astonishing. But as far as, as far as life is, um, there's no way that I, I could sit here and, and say to you that there is no life anywhere else in the universe. This universe is beyond compre- comprehension. It, the, the vastness of space and time is is simply beyond our comprehension. So we, I, I refuse to believe that we are the only thing in the in in the universe. However, uh, as Dr. Aquino also said, being able to travel to another planet with the possibility of having life. We're just so far away from that. Very true. Very true. And I I agree with that, Mike. And here's another thing. Uh, Speaking of which, Chinese scientists, they built the first quantum satellite network where they actually beamed, uh, I think, what was it? Uh, They beamed something. uh, I'm, I'm forgetting now what it was. I don't have that article in front of me. But they basically, um, well, they were using this um, satellite that uses what they do, beam Chris, a message? Well, they, it, it was a photon, basically, but this is about, uh, this quantum intangible, intangible type of ordeal here, and it's, it's all very interesting and very, uh, complex to follow, but of course, this was stuff that even Albert Einstein was, was saying it was like spooky, 
in a well, way. Well, you know, Mike, you know, Michael, uh, the thing is, and Stephen Hawkins made a great comment about this. Um, when you're in the lost in the jungle, you don't scream out. And as much as I would really enjoy to know that there's some other crazy species of life on some other far distant planet, there is also that possibility of a far greater intelligence out there that eats human life. And True. When you, find out, <laughs> you never know. You know, and once yeah. they find out that we're here going, hey, look at us, we're over here, we can make rocket ships go to the moon. And then they say, you know, let's, we've, we've all seen the, you know, Independence Day and War of the Worlds. Um, so, you know, there is that possibility that there may be a much greater, higher intellect, uh, species out there that eats humans and they may just come here and take us down. I mean, you know, you don't scream out when you're lost in the jungle. That's true. Well, I think that, um, and I'll, I'll kind of go right to the edge, as I as I mentioned a little earlier. A lot of the work that I did at uh, Space Command was right. highly classified, above top secret at the compartmented level. Um, the compartments, you know, that I worked in were uh, TK and MJ, and TK has our you know talent kilo that has to do with the um, input from the entire satellite system that's up there, and MJ is just what you uh, would think it is. Uh, which has to do with contingency planning, you know, that has to do with uh, con- ex- extraterrestrial concepts. So that entire, if you're talking about X-Files, that's what J2X was involved with. And if, and if you're talking about things like Majestic, that's what MJ was. And I was involved with that level of planning and that level of research. And there's, indeed, there's entirely very, very active, you know, thought that's going into both these areas. And I would, I would... I would reassure you, you know, to the point that what was what H.G. Wells came up with in War of the Worlds is right. pretty much the the last statement on this, and it's also kind of amplified in the movie uh, uh, The Andromeda Strain because the thing oh, yeah. that is the That's big a, what a great movie that was. Yeah, and the thing that is that is Earth's big defense against any kind of extraterrestrial invasion, if you're talking about that, is simply the the planet's biological envelope because. Uh, anything that came from another system would be coming from a completely uh, alien biological system, and the odds are that any intercommunication or in, any intercontact would be lethal in both directions. Which is the whole point of the Andromeda Strain movie was to say that if you know something comes out here from space and it's alive, it could be hideously dangerous when it hits the planet. And the message in War of the Worlds was kind of the converse, you know that. Um, any, if the Martians invade this planet, they might come with excellent uh, war machines, but they can't handle the the bugs, the the right. biological system here. So I would say that uh, long before you would find somebody actually trying to invade this place or try to eat us, so to speak, you would find an enormous amount of effort that would be at the arm's length level of just analyzing the hell out of the biology of the planet Earth. But I think that you would find that that same thing would be a very strong barrier between anything um, other than indirect electronic uh, spectrum kinds of communication and interaction, such as you'd find in, um, you know, in radio and television and computer interactions and things like that. So that's just that's just the pretty much the premise that we were going on uh, in Space Command. And I think there's a lot to be said for it, that the, the big barrier here, you know, the big wall, Donald Trump's wall, uh-huh, yes. <laughs> so to speak, is just exactly what H.G. Wells 
and uh, and Andromeda strain said it was biology. The dangerous thing, right. you know, I, I did a lot of work when I was working on mind where I did a lot of work into the research into the nasty underwear of the Central Intelligence Agency when it was working on the MK MK series of stuff. Mm. Yes, came along later than MJ, and the MK was everybody is it was making a big fuss about MK Ultra, which was the, the business of trying to sort of um, screw up people's minds with psychedelics and so on. The scary thing was MK Naomi. That was the biological stuff, and nobody paid a whole lot of attention to that. But when I got into that, it made my blood run cold because you're talking about the worst possible kinds of biological warfare that could be even conceived. And if if you're again if your listeners if 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 they're not going to be scared enough by what I said earlier about nuclear bombs and the Tsar bomba and stuff, tell them to go Google M K Naomi N A O M I about the biological aspects that were carried out then in the M K series of stuff, and they'll be damn glad you know that that was shut down without a whole lot of comment at the same time that MK Ultra was shut down because the whole series of MK stuff that the CIA was screwing around with was closed down at the time that the, it became a scandal out there in the Congress. But but MK, MK Naomi was the scary one, not MK Ultra. Yeah, that one's not very known. And on a side note, uh, Doctor, I've I've been hearing this for many, many years now, and I, I thought I'd ask you this one since... Uh, you were involved in Vietnam. I'm just curious, were they ever running drugs uh, in and out of Vietnam, the, the CIA? Is, is any of that true? Well, there was a lot of drugs that were being run out of out of there. Um, I, I'm not an expert on whether the CIA was, you know, directly involved in it in the way that it, that it was at the time of the Iran Contra stuff, which was right. pretty well exposed. Right, right. I know that there was a lot of drugs you know, going on in and out of Vietnam, and I was um, I was only indirectly involved, you know, with the agency there. I was so indirectly involved that a lot of times when I was working for parts of it, I didn't even know I was. Oh, okay. For example, I spent a lot of time working for CORDS, you know, the um, Civil Operations and Rural Development Support, which I thought was part of USAID, and I was doing a lot of PSYOP work for CORDS, uh, and... It was only a lot later, you know, when I was back over here that I found out a lot that Quartz was actually a subset of CIA. And a lot of those people that I worked with, of course, they just kept mouths shut. Yeah, we're just Quartz. We're with AID. And I was, what the hell did I know? You know, I was a, a U.S. Army captain at the time, and, and I didn't cross-examine anybody. But that was, uh, you know, that was just how, how secretive, you know, one, one part of the war was from another part of the war. Yeah, that's usually how it goes. And I'm looking at the time here, and I've taken up quite a bit of your time. And, uh, Mike, I'll, I'll let you get anything in here before I let Dr. Aquino go. Dr. Aquino, it is always a great honor uh, to get an opportunity to uh, crack open your skull and get some information. You are a very fascinating man, and I respect you. <laughs> I respect, <laughs> I respect you great, I respect you greatly for what you've done in the past. Uh, I, I, I find you to be a, an incredibly interesting character and I love getting the opportunity to speak with you. So thank you very much for allowing me to, to, uh, you know, talk to you and, and pick your brain. It's been my pleasure and I hope I got a good parrot joke in there too. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, sir. It's such, it's such an honor. Thank you. Yes. My pleasure. Yes, doctor. It, it's been a complete 
Uh, joy to bring you back onto the program. Tremendous honor and privilege to speak to you again. And of course, your, your books have always been quite influential to me and to many others around the world. I've actually, well. yes, I've actually used a few different things that I've learned from you and applied them to this program, but I'll keep that, uh, I'll keep that, uh, hidden and to myself for now. But again, okay. yes, I do want to thank you <laughs> tremendously, however, for all that you've done and, and your time serving this country. I do yes, thank you. Thank you. Yes, I do thank you, uh, very much for that, sir. And Absolutely. I do want to, and I do want to leave you with the final word. So anything you want to say uh, about anything, go ahead. The, the, the time okay. is now. Well, we've gotten into a lot of complicated subjects tonight. And some of them are pretty complex, particularly when you're getting into some of the scientific and metaphysical stuff. Right. It can be, it can be pretty bewildering for a while, but I've, I've tried to, uh, you know, I've got about 12 or 13 books out there and I've tried to write down as much as I can in a, as coherent a fashion I can about everything that I've learned over the years. I'm not, I don't expect to be around much longer. I'm, you know, 70 years old, not in good health, just uh, survived a couple of major bouts of cancer and stuff. So, oh, so I won't be around too much. I don't expect to be here too much longer. And then after that, people will just have to interview me, me by seance. <laughs> but yes. I've tried, I'll, I'll, I've tried I'll to make, that. we'll conjure you somehow. Yeah I've, yeah. I've tried to write down as much as I can in these books. So if you're curious about any of the stuff that we've gotten into, by the easiest thing to do is just go on Amazon and look up, you know, Michael Aquino as an author. Go to my author's page and you can see all of them down there and take a look. And if there's something that you're interested in, you know, then you can, they're all both ebooks, uh, Kindle books and, and uh, paperbacks. Pick them up that you're interested in. Take a look and see what you think. And, uh, anybody who reads any of this stuff and has a, a question, by all means, feel welcome to. Email me. The contact information is in there, and I'll do what I can to clear up anything that I've left unclear. And and the my other comment is just that in terms of where each of us is and where we go, at the end of the day, every day, you have to look at yourself in the mirror and decide whether you're proud of who you are and what you've done. And if you can say that, that you are proud of who you are and what you've done, then that's really all that you can expect from yourself. You can't you can't make over the entire universe by yourself, but you have a certain amount. I, it's what I called in one of my books that I find for the starfish principle. The starfish principle means that if you're walking down the beach and you see a starfish on the beach that's going to die if he's left there, and you pick him up and you put him back in the surf so that he lives, maybe you haven't changed the whole world, but you've made a difference to that starfish. Okay? Yeah, so if you true. go through life keeping the starfish in mind, I think you're going to do okay. Great. That's That's some wise words there. Absolutely. And, and you know what? If I may just say one more thing. Um, good luck with your treatments. I hope everything goes well for you, doctor. Thank you. Yeah. By the way, speaking of which, I, I believe you had emailed me right after you had open heart surgery. Is that? No, I didn't have open heart surgery. I I just had uh, open gut surgery. Open gut surgery. uh, Sorry about uh, that. I've I've basically had my entire colon removed. (laughs) Jesus Christ. So wow. are, are are you okay currently? Well, I'm I'm 60 pounds lighter, a lot lot slower and a lot weaker, but I'm still here. I'm not pushing up daisies just yet. Uh, wow. So I'm able to converse like this, um, get get those books out. I actually wrote Mindstar, one of the books when I thought I was going to be um, dead in a week or two, and then I oh I goodness. pulled back from that age from that edge. 
But if you read the preface of Mindstar, you'll see that it says this book was written by a dead person because that's kind of what I thought I was just about to be, and I was in a hurry to get it out before I croaked. Uh, So um, uh, as it happens, I'm still around, but that was the point at the time. I, I too, am a seven-time cancer patient survivor. Um, uh, So you know how much fun it is. Say again? I say, so you know how much fun it is not. Oh, yeah, it's, it's so much fun. I've gone through chemotherapy. I've gone through radiation. I've gone through surgery. Every sort of test you can possibly imagine from a spine, uh, uh, MIRs to bone, uh, bone scans. You name it. I've, I've had it. Bone marrow tests. Yes. I've had six bone marrow tests in my life. Absolutely terrifying. Um, so yeah, I, I, I know how wonderful it is and, uh, you have my um, uh, my support, and, and I certainly hope that everything goes well for you, sir. I really do. Well, I, I hope the same thing for you, that the worst of it is behind you, and you can take a breather and relax a little bit now from all the crap. I'm I'm trying. I've had it ever since I was Good. 16. Yeah, so, so what, Good, well. once again, Dr. Aquino, thank you for being on the program, and I hope to touch base with you again in the very near future. It's been a pleasure and an honor. I've enjoyed you and your guests, all of whom I think were very uh, uh, very lucid and very uh, thoughtful in their questions and comments, so I enjoyed every minute of it, and thank you very much. Awesome. Well, good night, and, and take care out good there, night, doctor. Sir. Hopefully we'll talk okay, to you soon. good night. All right, take care. Good Bye. night, sir. And wow. That was Dr. Michael Aquino, ladies and gentlemen. Um, fantastic guest, as always, and... I always learn something new when I speak to Mr. Aquino. He's, he's so intelligent. I yeah, really he, look up to that man. Yeah, me, me too, actually. You know, he's influenced me quite a bit. And I don't really like to talk about that sort of thing here on the program, but I, it's the truth. And, and he's someone that is just a complete wealth of knowledge. Absolutely. He um, just has everything. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's definitely a well-rounded, educated man. Uh, and you know, the funny thing about all of this is how, I mean, he's, he's got all this knowledge and yet any normal person off the street doesn't understand like what Satanism is about or in his case, the Temple of Set and what he believes in uh, or what he has created, uh, in a sense for, for his beliefs. You know, they would say immediately think of him as, oh, well, you know, that's that's just so wrong. But I mean, how can you how can you argue guy argue with a guy who's got so much logic and knowledge in his brain? So much intelligence there to to grasp. And my goodness, that that was fun. We went into all sorts of different things that I didn't think I'd get into with him. Uh, that's what the joy of having an improv conversation is like. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I mean, and, if people and, and, think and, and, I, if people think I took notes for this, um, you'd have to be insane. Um, it's, no. it's hard to take yeah. notes for, <laughs> it's really hard to take notes for certain, uh, certain guests to, to be honest with you because, uh, lots of times I will take a few notes. However, when it's game time, those notes go out the window. Right out the window. You know, all the time you asked, when you asked me to be a part of the first interview with him, um, when was that? A year ago? No, well, maybe a little over a year ago. Okay, so perhaps the first time you asked me to be part of that, uh, I had written. I think I wrote like something like ten questions, maybe, you, maybe more. Yeah, a little bit I think more. I asked all of two. <laughs> I'm telling you. See, that's what happens, Mike. Yeah, yeah. You have all these questions know. and you never get them off. No. Uh, and so, yeah, you're right. Doing an improv uh, interview is always the best, especially when you have a guest who is 
you know, able to oh, expand, yeah. uh, so in, in such detail on his answers and, uh, other, other topics. It makes the world uh, a world di- of difference. Go ahead. Sorry. Absolutely. I just wanted to say thank you uh, again for allowing me to be part of this. As always, you know how much I respect you and I love being on your show and uh, getting an opportunity to be a part of such a great interview. So thank you, Michael. I really do. No problem. No problem. And if you want, Mike, I'm going to hit a little break right now. And when I return, I'm going to finish up with uh, the program here. I'm going to wrap things up. I'm going to go over just a few more news articles here and uh pontificate some more and uh, you know annoy more annoy uh, more uh, new blood out there okay so and, what and you're, do you do well you're invited to to hang around if if you want to do that or you could go to sleep and uh, pet the parrot some more <laughs> it's up to you uh well i guess uh, i i guess i will say good night then uh, i do have I, my bird is asking how you doing oh doing good how you doing um i think i'm Birdie. actually going to Pull in a night, Michael, because I yeah. do have to get up early in the morning, and it is already two o'clock here. Did, five were you doing a, a wedding gig tonight? No, 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 um, no, that's uh, no wedding tonight. I was the parrot just, was uh, rapping out. there. Did you hear that? Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, wow. my fa- my fiance and I, uh, we went uh to dinner with uh some old friends of mine uh from when I was a, a young a young lad, um, and uh. We, uh, we had a drive out to Jersey, uh, which is always a, a grueling drive for me. Oh, um, so, but we had a great time together, uh, and I got to see some friends that we get together once a year. And, uh, you know, so that's about it, really. I, I, we just had a good time and I came home and I tried to get on the computer as quickly as possible. You know, what happened was I, I, I've got an older computer that I, I don't, I, I can't even use it anymore. I was hoping that I could get on and use Skype right away. So I turn it on. Skype asks me, would you like to update your program? Sure, why not? So I hit, you know, upgrade. And after it gets done upgrading, a message comes up and tells me I am no longer allowed or or able to use that program uh, on the iMac that I have because it's too old and the operating system does not support it. So I was pulling my hair out trying to figure out how (laughs) I was going to get in touch with you. I had to run downstairs, get my laptop. Then I had to download Skype into the into the laptop. <laughs> uh, download Skype into the laptop and go through that whole bullshit. Oh, what I I, I honestly cannot stand electronics. Skype is annoying. Yeah, I know. I'll, ever since that new update they implemented, it's been a, a piece of shit. To really, just to be honest with you, yeah, it's been kind of annoying. And another thing that's annoying is I I had just spent uh, some money trying to add like these other little little features you get if you give them extra money like you get a a a little number and the ability to make outgoing calls and i went and did that and i was trying to use it tonight and to my surprise it wasn't working so how how great is that mike oh were you getting my calls coming into you because i tried calling two different numbers I, i was getting your your uh call here on skype Oh, okay. Which I was working. Sure. Yeah, it's fine. All right. That I don't, don't want to. I don't want to bore your listeners with my uh, ability to to be computer savvy. It's so. okay. They they <laughs> enjoy they enjoy all the all the back all the background stuff all the behind the scenes stuff rather. And uh, Mike, are you going to be joining me next week for uh, the drunk cast? <laughs> I can't wait. That actually sounds really fun. <laughs> 
And this is the first time I've ever done something like this before where I will be drinking on the air. And, of course, I invite all the listeners out there to be doing the same thing. Just don't call in as any belligerent punk. <laughs> well, they can do that, but I, I don't think it's going to end well in their favor. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, I'm so ready what, for that. what day is this? The 16th, right? Yes, that will be for the 16th. No problem. I'm all set for that date. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm all set for that date. Um, so it'll be 8 p.m. Western Coast time, uh, which means for anybody that's on the East Coast here by me, uh, that would be 11 o'clock. Yes. Right? Right. Yeah. Okay. Looking forward to it, Michael. Well, I'm going to get buzzed. Me too. I'm going to get <laughs> drunk rather. Who knows? It's going to be, it's going to be dangerous. I hope you can operate your, uh, your, your electronics while you're, uh, under the influence. Well, that's gonna be a bit of a mission, but I think if I could put my head together, I could get it done. I'm sure you can. You're, you're pretty good at what you do. Ah, well, thank you, Mike. And I do want to thank you once again for being a part of the program. And now this is your time to say anything you want to say before I let you go. Ah, well, um, uh, if anybody is interested, in uh, what I have to offer, uh, there, I still have uh, Empire Hideous uh, CDs that can be purchased. I have uh, Spy Society CDs that can be purchased. I also have the reissue of my book, King of an Empire to the Shoes of a Misfit, um, the memoirs of Mike Hideous, uh, which I have uh, I rewrote. Uh, it's basically the same book, but I ac- actually rewrote it and added a new chapter to it. Uh, that is also available. Um, my websites are uh, empirehideous.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-E-H-I-D-E-O-U-S.com. And then there's MikeHideous, uh, M-Y-K-E.com. And uh, there's SpySociety99.com. And all my stuff is available on these uh, websites, as well as uh, if you want to contact me on Facebook, it's... It's Hideous Mike, Mike with a Y. That's about it. That's all I really have to say. Very cool. And I'll speak to you again very, very shortly here. And again, thanks for being a part of the program. It was fun to have you here and uh, do a special co-hosting gig here. Absolutely, Michael. It's always my pleasure to be on your show. and I'm always honored. Thank you very much, sir. All right. See you on the flip side. All right, buddy. Take care of yourself. Good Good night, night, buddy. Take care. And that was Mike Hideous, who will be joining me next week, and we will be drinking on the uh, proverbial air here, and I invite all of you to do the same. And yes, it is that time to go to the bathroom. So I'll be right back. And welcome back to the program, often imitated but never duplicated as you know by now. Hi, this is Michael, 
And we are indeed live on the TuneIn Radio app. Search End of Days, and of course, you'll find the 24-7 network. You can also find the program by going to YouTube and searching End of Days. If you hit the little tab there and hit Channel, you'll find this program. So glad to see so many of you still there. We're like a big, happy, dysfunctional family. Tonight has been fun. Truly has. It feels good to be here. I hope all of you guys are doing good out there. I know people in Florida aren't doing so well. That hurricane is doing quite a number on many folks out there. Quite sad. I hope all of you are safe out there. Remember, this is a call-in show, and that number is 760-332-8724. Go ahead and call in if you'd like. There is your invite. If not, I'm just going to say a few things and then just wrap it up. I've been here long enough. Most of you are tired by now, and I don't blame you. I was going to come on here on the second half and rip in, rip into Mr. Eric Bowling. He was officially let go from Fox News. However, I learned something terrible had happened. Apparently, his son committed suicide, and that's terrible. I'm pretty much at a loss for words on that situation. His son was only 19 years old. Very young. That's, that sucks. That's never good to hear. So I was going to come on here and say goodbye to Mr. Eric Bowling and say this and that and the other, but the guy's son just killed himself. Wow. Bit of a bummer there. Terrible, really. 19 years old. Gone. Apparently it was too much for, uh, Eric Chase. Eric Chase Bowling was found just hours after his father was let go by Fox News amid sexual harassment allegations. Apparently this was too much for uh, Eric Chase there. I guess he was embarrassed by his dad. I don't think I would have gone that route and killed myself if I was in in his shoes. But then again, I'm not in his shoes, so I, I don't know what's going on with that guy or what was going on with him. Uh, there seems to be um, probably lots of uh, back issues here that we don't know about. Who knows what was going on in that household? I'll just little, I'll just leave it at that. I'm not gonna get too far into it at all. I have no reason to anyway. By the way, I was on um, this little chat support thing with uh, Skype here, trying to fix the numbers here. It seems like the old 8947 num- number is no longer active. I'm going to try to fix that here. However, the other number, the 8724 number works just fine. You can call in whenever you want or not. That's fine with me. I'm going to wrap up here in a second. It was a good show while it lasted, folks. I had fun. I hope you had fun. I'll be returning again very soon with another very special guest. And Mike Hideous, he will be joining me once again. And it's that time, the the very special episode is finally coming to fruition. I'm excited. I'm a little anxious, but excited nonetheless. As all of you know by now, I'm not a big drinker. I don't really drink that often. And if I do, I'm drinking something like a wine or maybe some sort of IPA. And I've decided I'm going to go with an IPA this time around. I was going to drink wine, but I've stopped myself that. That would kind of be overdoing it, in my opinion. If I start drinking wine, I'm going to keep drinking and drinking and drinking, and it's not going to be pretty. So 
going to stick with the beer, folks. And I invite all of you out there, if you are listening to my words right now, tune in next week. I will be joined by Mike Hideous, and we're going to go over all sorts of different things, and I'll be drinking, and Mike will be drinking. I hope you join us in this endeavor. I also want to remind all of you, if you are listening back to this on the replay on the 24-7 network, keep in mind, if you want, you can go to YouTube and find any episode you might have missed. Just go to uh, michaeldeacon.com or go to youtube.com and search there. You'll find the program. Also, if you enjoy the show and you want to keep the program expanding, You can donate a few dollars. Go ahead and give me a dollar or two. I really appreciate that. This program completely depends on all of you out there. And, of course, that means you sitting there listening to the show. Be a friend and share. I'm Michael Deacon. Thanks for listening. And with that said, the world is a mysterious place. And life itself is a mystery. Until next time, good night, everybody. I could tell that all the mainstream media outlets were giving me like bullshit. Like, you can just see it. It's clear. <laughs> How appropriate. I wish I could be in that ring with Just for what it's worth, I want to put in my two cents to tell you that I haven't been over that yet, so I have those incredibly well-rounded shows. Introducing the greatest tag team on the radio. Guess what, You were you were a headline guy, I'm and still then a headline guy. You know what you, I mean. For a while you popped out. Now you're coming back. For I a while, back, for a while you were actually do, you, you, know were running, I mean? you were running a gym. Tell us about that. Running a gym. Weren't you Why running you a gym at some point? To be a news guy. <laughs> That's our research. You aren't. You this aren't. Is ridiculous. I come on CNN, and the guy don't even know what he's talking about. Go ahead. You at no point were you running a gym? Um, no, no, running a gym. What no, you, you need didn't a take a time out? Jesus fucking Christ with these guys. I come on the news for two seconds and, and you want to say, every All time right. I do an interview, a guy wants to open his fucking mouth. Can't All right, even Andrew, do a little thank fucking you very much. We here. thought that you, you could know, hold go back. Go fuck yourself. You know what? All I'm right. Fuck the whole fucking network. We'll go back to uh, talking about Art Carney.